Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. In 2017, the military gathered a small group of scientists to try and bring the Quantum Leap time travel program back online. Five years later, believing it was the only way to save his fiancée's life, Dr. Ben Song risked everything when he entered the accelerator to travel back in time. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. Ben believed he would only need to complete 18 leaps before he could return to the place and people he calls home. But something went wrong. And for reasons unknown, Ben did not leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 152, Secret History. It's me, Lawrence. Thank God. Thank God you're here. You're bleeding. What happened? Oh. Someone followed me. They thought I had the formula. You're going to be okay. Just breathe. Go. Blue. Help! We need help! Henry, it's real. You have to find it. Before they can. We're gonna we're gonna find it together, okay? So hold on. Hold on, Lawrence. Find her. Lawrence! 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 Oh, look, I got him. I got him. What happened? This looks like it's an internal system error. Um, I'm going to go and check the, the backup servers, but I, I will be right back. I need that quantum chip reactivated. It is an emergency. I'd love to help, but... The chip requires authorization codes every 24 hours to stay active, and seeing as how you locked us out. You were stealing data. No, we were collecting that which we were entitled to collect. You made the deal, Ian. Well, you're a long way from California, Professor McCoy. You're also the last one to see the victim alive. I told you. Professor Lawrence had already been attacked when I got here. He said the killer had cold blue eyes. Ooh, welcome to Princeton, New Jersey. It's 1955. You're a visiting physics professor and already a suspect in an unsolved murder. Wait a minute. Princeton, 1955? Jen, we are in the most exciting place at the most exciting time in American scientific history. All of the greatest minds are working here right now, including... Albert Einstein, your hero. Oh, I'm sorry, Ben. It's May 15th. Einstein died a month ago. Oh. oh hold up. That might be related to the reason why you're here. Einstein's death? It seems the late Professor Lawrence wrote several letters to Professor McCoy, that's you, asking you to help him look for a missing formula that was created by Albert Einstein. We're with the Atomic Energy Commission. Would you come with us, please? Am I under arrest? Quite the opposite. We need your help. That's Hannah Carson, the woman you met in New Mexico six years ago. The one you told to come here to Princeton. Einstein had thrown himself into solving the problems of nuclear fusion. Of which there are many. And he solved them. He did? Yes. Einstein sketched out a formula days before he died, but it was thought this work perished with him. Until Lawrence found the clue, which is when he reached out to me. Wait, I recognize this window. Oh, no. Ben? It's in the physics library. Einstein's telling us where to look. Hannah, this is fantastic. Opposite. Opposite of fantastic. Finding that clue just altered the entire timeline. Come on. I'll take you there. Ben, Hannah's gonna die. Tonight.
Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. And I'm Matt Dale. And Matt, I wish I was more musically talented because ever since I <laughs> saw this episode for the first time, I have that, you know, that sort of that prelude music to the Indiana Jones theme where it's like the dun, 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 you know, it's like that sort of that quiet reprieve, like the calm before the storm. And I just had like full on John Williams orchestra in my head. <laughs> oh, yes. See, that was me. I thought you were going to lead with Papa Loves Mumbo, but no. <laughs> I know how much you love a good sing song. Yeah, Perry Cuomo does have his charms. You're, you know, you're not yeah. wrong there. So, uh. <laughs> but yes, John Williams score. Yeah, been in my head for a few days as well. Yeah. So uh, today we are talking about Quantum Leap season two, episode six, Secret History, which was just another whiz bang adventure episode of Quantum Leap. Yeah, I mean, what what a tonal shift. Oh, Quantum Leap loves its tonal shifts, doesn't it? But uh, it it was, I think we both loved episode five, didn't we? But it, it was heavy. It was heavy yeah. and we needed a palate cleanser. And boy, what a palate cleanser we got. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is palate cleanser almost denotes like frivolity or um, <laughs> yeah. throwaway. But this is yes. anything but. Anything but yeah. that. Yeah. Before we go any further in the discussion of secret history, uh, Matt, why don't you tell everybody uh, the wonderful, amazing guest stars you lined up for this episode? Because we have interviews. We've got a great interview uh, coming up later with writer Drew Lindo and also director Pamela Romanowski. That's a, it's a dual interview. I was actually chatting to Drew. This this was originally just going to be a uh, an interview with Drew, which we've been trying to arrange for ages and the timing uh, just didn't work out. And then, yeah, quite recently, Drew said, hey, let me bring Pamela on. <laughs> I'm not going to say no. Because uh, Pamela <laughs> also directed uh, Leap Die Repeat last season, which must have been a toughie to direct. So we knew she had good background. We didn't talk about that in the interview. That might be for another day. But uh, yeah, we had a great chat with them. Went on for nearly an hour. And uh, that's coming up later in the show. Drew was terrific to talk to, and Pamela yeah. had such passion about the project. And yeah, it's yet another one I got to take part in because it wasn't during my workday. So, or it was kind of, but it was a time I <laughs> could was. actually be there. <laughs> yes, you, you showed up looking very suited and booted, which I'm not used to seeing. It was official, Chris. <laughs> you can see Chris in his button-down shirt on the YouTube yeah. channel, where uh, the interview will also be playing as part of both the after show with Albie and Hayden and as a standalone so you can get it so many different ways, but you'll definitely hear it here later, and we encourage you to, because if I can say anything, um, matching uh, Pamela's passion was Drew's just sense of joy, I think, in writing this episode. He seemed to be really psyched about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, we've been talking about this for weeks. Uh, as I say, it's, it's taken a lot while to plan out, and Drew was just, th through just through our text chats, Drew was jumping through the screen at how excited he was and uh he's got another episode coming up later in the season which he's now doing the same thing again he just keeps messaging me saying oh i'm so excited <laughs> he's like a child at christmas and it's it's brilliant and i yeah it absolutely comes through on the interview love it 
Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, as brilliant and exciting as that interview is and all of that was, we don't want to stop there because if you recall, I said interviews. Yes. And uh, yes, we also have another interview with the guest star of this episode, Colin Douglas. (gasps) Colin played the Nazi. He was the big bad or revealed as the big Mm. bad. And uh, he is, believe it or not, the first actor to appear on the podcast since the strike ended. Yeah, wow. Um, We've had a bunch of great interviews over the last few weeks, but it's so great to have an actor back on. Yeah, and it was so great that I got to do it with him because Colin and I spoke at length about his appearance on the show, and he really loved being on the set of Quantum Leap. He had some nice things to say about the Quantum Leap podcast, (laughs) and... He's had such an amazing career. Just you name it, this guy's done it. So, yeah, we definitely, definitely, definitely don't want to give this one short shrift. After the interview with Drew and Pamela, we will be playing our interview with Colin Douglas. So, we're going to need to stay tuned for that, right? Yeah. And it, it's so great. In, in all those interviews, they all really speak to what a great episode this is. Cullen, Pamela, Drew, they're all so proud of, uh, of of everything that we're just about to start talking about. Well, we got a lot to discuss here. Um, as, as you had indicated, this really was a tonal shift from last week's episode. And it's one of the great things about Quantum Leap is that you can do so many different types of stories. It's really just limited by the writer's imagination and I guess where they want to take the series. But I think it's also indicative of a lot of stuff that's happening here in season two. I just feel like, again, the season seems so much more expansive than the first season did. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, again, it's just not fettered by by different stuff. I mean, there were a couple of issues I had with the episode, but uh, we'll, we'll get to all of that. So before we go any further, Matt, why don't we get some first impressions? What did you think of Secret History? Well, let me talk first about pre-first impressions. What? Okay, what? So th- this is, well, <laughs> this is I, I, no, because I think it's important to admit when, when podcasters are wrong. Um, I, I, <laughs> next time on the Quantum Leap podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting the reference. Um, so yeah, um, look, th- this was promoted as, uh, an episode about Nazis trying to get hold of nuclear energy and Ben goes up against the Nazis. Yeah, okay, fine. And also it was clear from the, the trailer at the start of the season that this was going to be a big Hannah episode. And I like the idea of Hannah, but I did not warm to her as much as others did in 203. So, as I say, I'd been swapping messages with Drew, who was very excited, and that that led me to have a bit of enthusiasm about it. But I went in with medium expectations. Oh, I was pleased to be wrong. (laughs) Oh, what a fun episode. (laughs) Yeah, it's got everything, and it's got some surprises in it which we'll go into. I mean, I, I the, the stuff with Tom particularly did not see Tom having such a pivotal role in this episode as well. It's just, yeah, so much to unpack and a real highlight of the season, a, a joy, basically. It's, it's just a, a joy to watch. Wow. Okay. Well, that really is a 180 considering how badly you were shitting all over Hannah's character in uh, Closure Encounters. There, <laughs> I said wasn't, it. <laughs> I don't think I was shitting. I just, yeah, I... I I wanted to like her more than I did. Gotcha. No, uh, yeah, we've been there. We've been there. I mean, w- yeah. with a lot of stuff. There are a lot of things in the first season I wanted to like more than I did. And um, mm-hmm. here we are. Um, now we're liking it more than we expected. So it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So I, I, 
I'm with you there. I think this episode was a joy. I think it sort of picks up where the first episode left off in the sense of more expansive, a sense of adventure. And I know that we had referenced Indiana Jones, and but mm-hmm. I would say it's more of like a caper mystery, more like a national treasure feel to me than just like a, a flat out like Indiana Jones style pulp adventure. It had elements of both, but I really liked sort of the hunt aspect of it. And um, I didn't know what to expect from this episode. I knew that they were going to have to do Hannah. So I was hoping to get more Hannah. I was very happy with the Hannah stuff that we got. I didn't expect that we would get so much Tom here as well. I didn't know yeah. that they were going to bring them both in at the same time. So, no, no. Yeah, so initially, like pleasantly surprised at the scope of the episode on a character level, because now we have, I think, a much better basis for our two main uh, leads, or the new leads anyway. They're part of the regular cast. And a good episode overall to boot. It's sort of a nice little package, and it has a lot to offer. So, yeah, I'm really happy with it. And thank you so much for referencing National Treasure, because there was something, uh, even while we were talking to Pamela, there was something in the back of my mind bugging me, thinking this Indiana Jones, yes, but there is something else. There is something about the look of it. And even just down to the color palette, that sort of green and amber hue that the whole thing has, it reminded me of something else. And you've just nailed it. Thank you. It's National Treasure. That's I, I was feeling it right the way through and couldn't quite articulate it. Damn, I need to go and watch that film now. I've not seen it since it was out. It's a national treasure when National Treasure did National Treasure well, too, because yes. I loved yeah. National Treasure. Then I watched the second one, and it seemed like the clues were driving the story. It was like the tail was wagging the dog on that one. Let's yeah. let's double down on what everybody loved about the first one. But this didn't have that, that sense. It was more of a character-based episode, but it just had some of those mystery elements and some of that solve the riddle stuff, which was really cool. Yeah. It was like a sepia quality about it. So when you say that that green and that gold, it, it just had an old timey type hue. When they were in the sets, it felt like a genuine sense of antiquity to me. And speaking to that old timey quality, I mean, Lawrence's apartments mm. in Princeton, they're like my fantasy, like my fantasy library, my fantasy study. <laughs> I mean, so a lot of this spoke to me personally as well, because I just love the aesthetic, that erudite antiquity. Oh. You know, I fancy myself to be a man of letters. You and me are so opposite, Chris. It's the kind of place that I'd love to visit and go, oh, cool, and maybe spend an afternoon there and then be very pleased to go home to my modern minimalistic, I don't want anything around, everything digital, get rid of the books. I'm not, I'm sorry. Anyway. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's fine. We'll never have to fight yes. over the library. So that's yeah. that's good. You know, it's the basis yeah. for a good relationship, I think. But it was nice to see a, more of a period flavor on this one. Yeah. And I, I have never, I, I think in, since the revival uh, started, I've, I've never felt the urge to comment on the color palette before. There's always a lot going on to create the atmosphere, but this one just, just pushed it a little bit further, just enough that it became something worth discussing. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about a lot of different elements here that went together to make the episode good. But as much as I've loved what they've done with Ben this season, I feel like this is the first leap where we get to see Ben having fun. Oh, we needed that. Right? (laughs) Poor Ben. It reminded me, yeah, he got to be a geek. He got to be a physics nerd. And (laughs) I mean, it, it, it was almost like, okay, I... 
we we had the big breakup. Then we had the sojourn into the L.A. riots. So mm-hmm. it was just like it, it's it's a lot. It's a bit much. So it's it's nice to just let him take a breath and be him in the episode. And even though I feel like we've been getting a lot of great character work out of Ben this season and all the main cast, it still feels like this may be the first time since the new paradigm that he has had to just breathe a little bit. It was palpable to me in the episode because I don't know that I've ever seen Ray settle so firmly into the character before. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that. But yes, you're right. And I think, I mean, you talk about the the new paradigm and it's it feels like because this has been with us for weeks now and to an extent over the summer break as well this this it feels like it's been a this big thing i think when when we look back and we binge watch this in years to come it's basically been a five episode arc that's dealt with all this horrible stuff that ben's gone through and and it's a worthy arc but it's so good to be also kind of out of the other side of it and getting back to getting back to more of the kind of stuff he did in the the last season having some fun I guess even in the the tougher episodes last season, he was still having a bit of fun. But this really doubles down on that with uh, the the fact that yeah, he gets to go to Princeton and talk about Al, and uh, that's Einstein, <laughs> not Calavici. His Al, but his Al. His Al. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's good. It it feels like an element of the arc has sort of come towards an end. And I'll be interested if I turn out to be wrong about that and it resurrects itself. But it does feel like there's been a bit of closure and Mm. we're now ready for a new part of the Quantum Leap ongoing plotline. So uh, when you're talking about the end of a certain port of arc, are we talking about the back at the project stuff or are we talking about with with Ben personally? I mean, yeah, I mean, Ben adjusting to Addison. And it kind of feels to me like at the start of the last season, we all thought, okay, Ben's going to go through the whole season not remembering his relationship with Addison. That's really interesting, but are they going to keep that going for 18 episodes? Well, no, they didn't. They they knocked that on their head after a few episodes, and it feels like they've done the same thing here. They've kept that story going as long as is natural, and now moving on. And that's that's fine. I'm good with that. Yeah, and I think another reason why it resonated with me and made me feel like I was watching the classic series, uh, a little bit anyway. Uh, it took me a while to put my finger on it, but I think like the whole first season was was kind of frenetic in the sense that Ben was a leaper on a mission and he had what he thought were a certain number of leaps before he could rescue Addison and return home. So he was focused on that and it really wasn't about the leaping, it was about the mission. Mm-hmm. And now that that mission is accomplished, yet he never went home, This arc that you were talking about, the first five that we saw, was him coming to terms with that, which I've gone on about ad nauseum. But Mm -hmm. I feel like in this one, it's maybe the first time we got to see him have fun being a leaper on his own terms. And I feel like maybe maybe I'm repeating myself, but I just feel like it, it bears qualification because yeah. I think that's that's a great part of why I enjoyed the episode. He's not leaping for a purpose anymore per se. He's not bent on getting home and back to Addison anymore per se. He's just now in a position for the first time ever where he can experience the leaps as they come and react to them and settle into them and settle more into his role. He even says as much to Hannah. This is my life. I can't get home. I just keep leaping. And I meet all these amazing people through time, but 
I never see them again. I don't know. It just, it, it signals to me a shift in the way he has been playing the character. And I like that about it. It just, it has much more of a, a comfortable feel. I, I don't even know yeah. how to describe it. I guess, yeah, I guess comfortable would be a way to say it. Like now I feel like I'm watching something that's a lot more akin to the feeling of the classic series, which is always a plus for me. Yeah. And it, this episode does manage to have its cake and eat it because there is that element. There is, okay, he's let go to an extent and said, okay, yeah, hoping each time his next leap will be the leap home, whatever, but ultimately he's having these leaps and he's taking them as they come. And that's, that's good. But at the same time, this is then the episode where he meets Hannah for a second time. And that's surely the one thing that really must, well, it does hit home for him about how lonely leaping can be because he's got no through line besides the hologram characters. His life is just going to be wandering from one place to the next. And we know that. We know that's the basic plot of the series. But having somebody crop up a second time that he's then not going to see again, potentially ever, I'm fairly sure he will, but he doesn't know that, really lands that. So I I, I love the fact the episode does play both sides of that. Yeah, and I think in a good way, hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know... Could there have been a credible connective tissue between Sam's leaps? They tried it in season five with the Lamadas, but that was yeah. just to introduce Aaliyah and Zoe. So I'm, I'm thinking like, would we have bought it in the original series the way I think we're buying it here? And I, I think that I'm ready to buy it in this series a lot more than I would have been if Sam had had recurring leaps <laughs> trilogy, <laughs> trilogy. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I feel like I feel like this version of Quantum is is more primed for a dynamic like this, and I can't put my finger on why. I think. I mean, maybe it's because we're not in the era of anthology TV anymore. Maybe it's because there is that through line of the back of the project stuff, so that it becomes a bit less of an anthology anyway, and we're we're just waiting for that to hit Ben. But yeah, I, I don't I don't think I can describe it any better than that, but I feel the same way as well. Sam's loneliness only ever really was brought to the fore when he met with familiar characters from his own life. Uh the Leap Home, the Leap Back, Starcrossed. Um beyond that, it he he fitted into the surroundings that he was in for that episode and, and that was all fine. This episode really spoke to the loneliness. This is where maybe I have a bit of a quibble. You're the keeper of the timetables. Have we determined from Ben's point of view, since uh, this took too long, how long he has been cognizant to the fact that it's been three years? Like, I know that we had spoken to the point where I think by episode three was a closure encounters where it was maybe a day and a half that he had been yeah. living with the news. And now, I mean, how, how much later we're talking about from the Neil episode and then the riots episode, maybe subjectively, what, a week? Yeah, I mean, no, none of the leaps have been more than 24 hours so far this season, unless there's stories he's having between the leaps, but that, that would be 
it was sort of un- untold leaps, which was was a lot easier to imagine in the original series. Not so much here because of the ongoing emotional arc for Ben. So, yeah, it, it's it's been maybe a week. It's just a lot to get his head around in a short space of time. It really is. And that's maybe if I have some quibbles, it's sort of the accelerated timeline of Ben's process here because it should take longer. But of course, you know, we're in episodic television and you got to get <laughs> you got to get the story going. It's just yes. nerds like us that think, OK, Ben got this news about four and a half days ago and now he's macking on Hannah. So <laughs> and, and for for most of the audience who don't go back and, and binge this in years to come, we've had weeks to process all this because that 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 week in between each episode it would seem odd to us if a month and a half after we found out about this he's still banging on about it get on with your life it's been a month yeah and a no half. you're it's, right it, it's not for him but it's just that that connection with the audience yeah so i mean listen i for all that i again nitpicking right that's what we do yeah. this podcast yeah. <laughs> but i'm really so happy that they introduced santa and i'm really so happy that we got to know as much as we did about her in this episode because i don't know if i've indicated this map but i think that eliza taylor is doing a bang-up job as hannah <laughs> yeah she, she really is yeah, she is just sparkling. Whenever she gets on camera, I think like the entire episode lights up in in a way mm-hmm. that the series hasn't had that happen before. And I'm just going to say it outright: haters come at me. I feel a lot more chemistry between Hannah and Ben than I did between Ben and Addison. I don't know how I feel about that because I I still feel that this new relationship is. Almost a little forced in as much as, oh, hey, he's a physics nerd. She's a physics nerd. It felt quite natural, this episode, but it almost seems a bit too obvious in a way that Ben and Addison were not two sides of the same coin. They were suitably different that I, I, I buy them both in different ways. Okay. All right. And maybe if you're talking about like Ben coming on like a rebound, this is someone who would appeal to him more naturally. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a believable rebound. Yep. And someone also that is ready and able to accept his reality, which most people would put him in an institution. I'm a time traveler. When I travel through time, I leap into other people to change history for the better. That's incredible. Whoa! A guardian angel sent from the future? That's got to be the most the most romantic bit of physics I've ever heard. And that's vital. I'm not being down on the fact that she's a physics nerd at all, but even if I was, I think it's an important part of it because, yeah, no one else would believe him. Did you get Shades of Starcrust here? Did you get any kind of feelings like that? Because I did. I didn't, but go on. Well, again, just I think like the naturalness of the way that they come together on screen. Maybe, again, it's sort of that ineffable thing, the chemistry that that I had just mentioned. Mm. I feel like there's a joy there. And I felt maybe when I think of Starcrossed, I think of like the unbridled joy that Sam had upon seeing Donna at the Mm. university and him reveling in the memory of falling in love with her and convinced that he was there to make sure that, you know, they got together because it was like one of the great regrets of his life that she left him. So I I, maybe it's the ebullient factor, right? I I think that I'm just happy to see my leapers happy. 
<laughs> so maybe that's why maybe that's maybe that's yeah maybe that's it maybe it's it's not anything more than that also you know the whole quantum entanglement thing and i know they played with that a little bit in the first season but mm. it, it's just all but saying star-crossed it's just in different physics terms yeah there's a lot of in in both episodes and with all four characters there's a lot of those stolen looks and there's something going on here that I can't quite explain, which, yes, I can see those kind of connections for sure. And that's cute. That that kind of thing always makes me smile. I'm a romantic. I love a good rom-com. Yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly Albie, but I'm not dead inside. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, so, yeah, I, I just I hope that when we do see Hannah again, because we know we will, that she has advanced to the point where maybe she knows more about, well, it depends on what timeline we're in. See, not timeline, <sighs> but wh- where are we? I- I- I'm sorry about confusing like timeline and time frame. It's just that we had that last scene when Ben said, ask me any question about the future. What do you want to know? And <gasps> oh. the question she asked. I want to know one thing, future boy. Just one. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. Okay. One question. What's your name? I cried both times I watched this. Um, <laughs> I just immediately started crying when he when she asked that. It just it it hit me. Sorry, Gary. I know that wasn't the point. No, you were no, making, it's okay. I, I was up too. So. It's okay. But I mean, but that's the thing. I, that's how effective I knew the character. It's almost like at the end of the Lonely Hearts Club when Neil is in the car and he starts breaking down and crying, and then all of a sudden I'm breaking down and crying. I had no idea that I I, I had said on the pod. I had no idea that I cared about this character until I realized how much I cared about the character. Yeah. And how much they'd gotten under my skin. So that whole romantic turn at the end of this, again, I was enjoying their relationship. I was enjoying the dynamic, but I didn't realize how invested I had become in it in such a short time until those last few minutes and the second that ben gave hannah his name i had visions of a significantly older hannah showing up at project quantum leap somewhere honeymoon express style bad bad looking for ben (laughs) yeah no no not not even showing up as part of the history now i mean like an old woman saying i know ben's song and I'm here now. It's been 84 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> she died in 33. Yeah. How old would Hannah be in their timeline? In their t- Again, I see you say in timeline. I'm a bad time Charles fan. How old would Hannah be in their present? Um, see, I, I, I keep thinking the 50s was like 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a millennial. Everything stopped 80s, around. Sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so this, this episode was set, what? 55. Which was, what, 70? No. Oh, that wasn't 70 years ago. Stop it. Stop. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, it was. Holy crap. Okay. So she, she'd be about 100 years old. Yeah? Yeah, she'd be 106. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So that's not going to happen. All right. Bad idea. Scrap that idea. But hey, in pe- my head, people, it happened People somehow. live to 106, but uh, yeah, I, I think the idea of her doddering in, they'd have to they'd have to recast. <laughs> I don't think they could get away with the makeup to make her 106. But It'd be like the, like the end of the Titanic or the beginning of Titanic or both well, yeah, the beginning that's, that's and the end of the Titanic. It's been 84 yeah. years, <laughs> but I still remember kissing an old professor. 
I was gonna. <laughs> made me laugh so when I'm coughing. I was gonna save that, but God, what must have that leap in or leap leap back have been like for Doctor Jones, or it's Professor Jones in this one? I, it's McCoy. It's not Jones. It's Henry McCoy. Henry <laughs> Jones. The. the- <laughs> I, I appreciated that scene more the second time round because the first time I watched the episode, I kind of blinked and missed the mirror scene. And because Ben was walking around with a, a cane the whole time, I kind of imagined him being a, a fair bit older than he was. And I just had visions of Hannah kissing this 60, 70 year old professor. Wasn't, wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty at all. The second time around, I was, I made more of a mental note of the mirror picture. Like, okay. All right. I can, I can see that. He's clearly older, but it's, it's not, not quite as icky as I thought. It's not as egregious as, as one might think, but, uh, yes. it's got to be quite a surprise to come back. Lucky Professor McCoy. Unfortunately for Hannah, in the 50s, that means they have to get married now, so. Yes. Oh, too bad. I'm going to tell him he's had a concussion, and I was I was kissing him out of it, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. So, I guess we're going full on Hannah here. That kiss, to me, seemed a, a little bit unexpected. Uh, it was kind of wish fulfillment. We wanted it for the fiction. We wanted it for the drama. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it almost feels like Ben is overcompensating. Because he finally makes a connection with somebody, he's feeling alone, and Mm -hmm. this is someone who he can jive with, and now he's just moving right in. It's like, dude, wait three days. But yeah, but until when? (laughs) He thinks he might not see her again. (laughs) We know the way that drama works, and we know there's a story arc here, and we know that she was announced as a regular. So, he doesn't have copies of Deadline. And I think it worked for the emotional punch at the end. Yes. I really enjoyed the kiss and yeah. that leap out. I mean, was that the first leap? Well, no. Well, okay. So the first, the, the leap in kiss would be Honeymoon Express. The leap out kiss would have been Kamikaze Kid. The hashtag problematic leap out kiss. <laughs> yes. For, yeah, Kamikaze Kid. I, I, yeah. So I think that this joins the ranks of some other memorable episodes in that respect. And I mean, the way I saw it the first time, this was also hashtag problematic. Some octogenarian having a bit of a snob. <laughs> he wasn't an octogenarian just, just I know, because he had I a limp. He was a professor, and I, a professor with a limp. So I, <laughs> Harrison Ford was a professor too, and he's hella sexy. So think more yeah, like true. that. Yeah, okay, that's fine. But I mean, we we keep talking about the limp and how it shaded who you thought the leap E was. But I just, you know what? We we talked about so much in the interview with Drew. This is something I'm, God, I wish I had remembered to ask him. Because this is maybe the first episode where we see the physical limitations of the leap E affecting Ben to mm-hmm. such a great degree. And you had mentioned this, I think, one or two podcasts ago where Ben is now, it's different in the sense that he's there with them so he shares in their physicality and they sort of established that in Drew's episode in the first season someone up there likes Ben yeah where he has the muscle memory and the skills of the boxer because that's how that body is trained and it seems to me we haven't been seeing a lot of that dynamic on the show and Drew is the only one that seems to want to lean into it a little bit yeah to the point where now we get a very visible handicap for Ben yeah, it, it's rare. When we do see it, it's usually to bring out the skills, the, uh, the the culinary skills in family style, the ability to chop, 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 all that kind of stuff. I think there's only been two times where 
the physicality's had a negative impact as uh, he, he also gets out of breath quite easily and what a disaster because his leapy is a bit out of shape. But that's that's a minor throwaway point. It's never been really used for peril and it's not really used for peril here, but it's uh, it's certainly leaned into, as you say. No pun intended because he spends most of the episode <laughs> leaning. <laughs> so I didn't. I really didn't mean to go there. Uh, We're going to get some kind of call from somebody somewhere, I, but uh, it was harmless enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I thought that was an interesting dynamic. I, I, I like that. I like seeing the limitation. I know that uh, we love to just rehash the mind-body leap on the show now for me just because it's fun. But it's almost when Sam stands up in Nowhere to Run. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a cheat? I don't know. It's just like, I feel like the drama, like there could be now more stakes for Ben if he does have some significant liability that maybe his host has lived with their entire life and as adept at navigating, but that yeah. he has no frame of reference for and which could really trip him up. I, I feel like it could amp up the drama a little bit if they leaned into that more in coming episodes, if the story warrants it. Yeah, and that that was a a really good thing they did in Trilogy Part 3. And it, that was a rarity for the original series, but where they did, they they lent into the fact that the Leapy had a heart condition and there was some kind of psycho-synergizing going on, mumbo-jumbo, but that created some stakes. And that was one of the really good parts of Trilogy for me. So for them to hopefully start exploring that more, I think that that would be that's that would be really good. Use it for use it for the peril and the stakes and the drama, not necessarily for the hey, he's a boxer now, so he can box. Mm, mm. The fact that uh, Larry Stanton's bum ticker is a highlight of trilogy for you says I think all we need to say about trilogy. <laughs> I didn't I didn't mean to be mean. I like trilogy more than most. <laughs> I know you do, which is weird. Um <laughs> You know what um, I liked more in this than I anticipated liking? Our good friend Tom, Tom Westfall of the yeah. Tommy Westfall universe? Question mark, we don't know. But I did, did not from? expect, yeah, I did not expect a lot of Tom in this episode. I thought this was going to be the Hannah spotlight. And it turns out that, no, we're actually getting both of our new main characters um, some really good stuff to do. So you want to talk about Tom a little bit? Yeah, I mean, thank goodness Ernie Hudson had to go off and make Ghostbusters. That that definitely, <laughs> that must have helped. Because, uh, yeah, managed to get Tom much more front and centre and doing some really good stuff, which Tom so far, like Hannah for me, somebody that I wanted to like, but I just couldn't, I couldn't quite find a way in. And he, even the... <sighs> slightly cliched oh oh he has a dead wife plot line fine but that doesn't actually automatically make me care for him i i can see he has a troubled past but that does not immediately mean that i've got an interest in the character now i have an interest in the character he he's engaging he's believable he's realistic he's flawed he's not this like uh, this guy that's just hey addison you know this you're going through all this stuff and i'm there for you and you know, he, he's been so patient with her to a fault, and it's good seeing him a bit more human. I hadn't noticed how annoyingly perfect he was until this week. I mean, oh, you have, you have. Trust I edit the show, I've listened to every episode multiple times. You've had a problem with Tom since day one. 
I had a problem with him. I just, I just wasn't <laughs> sure I'd been able. To, I'd, I'd really noticed why, but okay, maybe I had noticed why. But certainly, I, I felt this week it was more noticeable that he'd been annoyingly perfect before, because <laughs> now, now he's less so, and that's good. That's good. I like it. We, we're getting more into the character. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, before this episode, I thought Tom was a snake. I really thought that he was going to be the one lying in wait and ruining everything for everybody and causing misery. And I don't know why. I just pegged him as the bad guy because he was annoyingly perfect. He was so, you know, oh, I'm there for you, Addison, and I'm going to talk and really, you know, dulcet, sexy ASMR tones. And Oh, Chris, stop it. You're doing something for me. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's all about the voice. I think I found a new Patreon show, uh, Quantum Leap <laughs> After Dark, the Tom Westfall edition. I think that um, really this helped me – I don't know about like – I guess I do like Tom now. It's like, damn you, I like Tom. I wanted Tom to be the bad guy, and now I feel bad for him, and I feel like he's a human being. And really great stuff between him and Ray, Peter and Ray – played off each other very well in this and there was those moments of tension in the beginning but they seem to come to some kind of understanding towards the end at least as mutual respect and you don't want Ben to be there already but I feel like it says something about Ben's character because he is genuinely a good person if he meets someone who is also a good person trying to help maybe he is more willing to have a change of heart because yeah. at the end of the day, it's nobody's fault or he's accepted the fact that maybe it's it's his own fault, his situation. So why punish Tom for that, even though it must be killing him inside in some way? And I feel like we saw a real evolution in the very short time that we had in this episode of cementing at least some kind of relationship where I could see Tom and Ben interacting more in the future of the series where I thought it would just be an ungodly shit show. I've got to say... Usually in the HQ scenes, there's a team of extras wandering around in the background, filling the place out. And at this point, Jen runs out of the imaging chamber, says, I've got to be somewhere. Uh, Addison says, well, who who's going to go back in? And suddenly there's no one in the background. So I, <laughs> Actually, I think I, there was. There were like, <laughs> aren't there like 14 people behind you? <laughs> But yeah, it stretched credulity a little bit that uh, there's only, there's only what, five people that are allowed to go into the imaging chamber. One of them's off taking some personal time. One of them is, is an ex and two of them are just off doing something else. And we don't really know what, but okay. So it's got to be Tom. Does it though? Does it? Right. What about Mazuka and his diorama? Yeah, that's from season one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Masuka would have been great to go in there and do some dioramas with Ben, um, but obviously it was a it was a necessary plot device, and I'm glad it happened because there was such great dialogue between the two. Great moments of Tom not really being sure how holograms work and kind of screwing up a bit, and really fun moments that you would never have got in the original series with with Perfect Sam. Where Tom's saying like, oh yeah, yeah, just just grab his wrist and redirect the knife into his shoulder. Don't know how to do that. Remember, I'm not a soldier. Yeah, I can't do that. What are you talking about, <laughs> asshole? I'm not a soldier. <laughs> yeah. So it was well worth it. There was just a moment where I thought, this is a little forced, but okay, fine. It's it had to happen uh, because it gave us all that. 
Yeah. And you know what? It never even really occurred to me now because we were so focused on Ben and Addison and establishing their relationship or lack thereof since the beginning of the season where Tom was just sort of a natural foil for that. It was almost like the plot device that let us have this story of the breakup and the recon- – not really the reconciliation, but Ben's eventual reconciliation with his life, with his fate. And, okay, we've introduced that. Now what do we do with Tom? And it didn't even occur to me that Tom was so one note as, again, just a plot device, whereas now we have an actual character, which I I didn't know it was high time, but it was high time to do something with the character. Otherwise, why would he still be at the HQ? Mm -hmm. Why have him there at all if it's just going to be one or two scenes that are of no consequence? So I think that it really served everything well to put him in – I don't even know if we need – you know, I think we did. We needed to have him interacting with Ben. We needed to have him as sort of a full-fledged member of the team now. Now he feels like he belongs there where before he was just like this weird kind of half-silent guy hanging around in the background. Maybe saying a pithy thing here or there and being way too supportive, suspiciously supportive, Tom. Stop being so nice. Why do I trust you now, Tom? You've gotten under my skin, too. Ugh. I joked about it earlier, but it's it's really good that we we will know what kind of size role Ernie Hudson has in the newest Ghostbusters film based on how long Tom is taking <laughs> centre stage. So if, 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 like, the next few episodes, Tom is front and centre... We know Ernie probably has a sizable role in Ghostbusters. I appreciate that kind of connection in production. I gotta tell you what, though, if they did need to write Ernie out because of his other obligations for you know summer blockbusters and things like that, because he's Ernie fucking Hudson, you know mm-hmm. he's got a, he's got a, he's got a lot of stuff to do. Um, <laughs> they picked the perfect episode because to me yeah, yeah. it made perfect sense that Magic was taking a personal day after everything that we saw in One Night in Koreatown, the alcoholism and the emotional toll and the reliving it, and it's just like, oh. Thank God he's taking a personal day. You know, even that was just like, I felt better for magic that he just removed himself and is in my head trying to recenter himself and get better. Yeah. They made it work. Yeah. But also, also, as well as the the magic side, this was also a, a really good opportunity for Tom. And I don't know if this kind of story could have been told in a different episode, certainly not in a different episode number. I feel like this was the right time of the season to bring him out. I think you're right. I feel like that we have seen a lot going on with our original main cast, the core family. And we all know where they are now. We've established that. So I think it is time to bring Tom in. Again, it's nice to see them giving Nanra some more to do, having Jen take center stage as the hologram mm-hmm. in this one, which Drew talks about a little bit, actually. Yes. Um, yeah. Hint, it wasn't always supposed to be that way, but TV being TV, and you'll hear more about that in the interview. But everybody knows we're hashtag Team Jen here on the Quarter yeah. Podcast. And- always glad to see Jen in the imaging chamber. Yeah. And I hope that um, maybe the next episode that we see will have some more substantive stuff for Jen because she still seems to be reacting in everybody else's story without her own main story. So I'm hoping that we get just at least before the hiatus a little bit more stuff for Jen to do that's more personally affecting for her. But 
unless you want it, you won't even notice it because Nenris always does such a good job that off the cuff delivery and the character of Jen just seems to be seamless mm. in all of the interactions that she has. So it's it's natural anyway. So she is as much part of the story as anybody else, but there's not a lot of plot action focusing on her specifically. And I'd like to see more of that. Yes. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. So one thing that Jen was involved in this episode fairly heavily was the whole quantum ship fiasco. Shall we talk about that? Yes. It, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not sure how I feel about this plot line. Um, it, uh, it feels... Uh, <laughs> you got some noise going on there, or is that you? <laughs> That's me. I couldn't. <laughs> that almost sounded like background noise. I, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how I feel about this because it does feel like a, a smaller version of the mystery box. There is now. Oh, let's let's do some driving around LA, but at least it's being kept minimal, and it's once again, as it did a couple of weeks back, it's given a chance to show uh, a bit more of the Ian Rachel story. So there's an emotional plot to the subplot. Not really sure what Jen did at the end there. Just rocked up and looked a bit threatening, but it's fine. Yeah, it's it's okay as as long as it's it's a small piece of the plot line, and it doesn't end up being the big season finale all about the chip. Yeah, I mean, I'm having trouble the same way you are with it feeling a little bit like some of the dynamics of the first season creeping back in mm. to the detriment of the show. And it's not that I find it as distracting. It doesn't seem as mishmashy as the first season did. I just, I mean, for the most part, just, I just find it flat out tedious. Like, I'm, I'm not crazy about what's going on here with this chip. I'm not crazy about introducing this character of Simone. I don't even know her last name. I call her Simone Evil Chip. That probably is her name. Floriana Lima. That is her name. Simone Evil Chip. Simone Evil Chip. <laughs> and it, it just, it still doesn't make any sense for everything that they've been through as a family together, which apparently includes Tom, because they, they spoke uh, right at the start of the season about, you know, the last few few years we've come to know and love Tom as well. So Tom's by default part of that group. Why Ian hasn't just held their hands up and said, yeah, I screwed up. Help. Well, probably because they'd be facing some kind of federal charge. There'd be culpability there. They probably broke a whole bunch of laws in making the end run. But I have a couple of questions about it. Yeah. Okay. Number one, there's no Tina. I mean, Ian is sort of the gushy and the Tina of this series. But <laughs> where are the hardware architects that are monitoring Ziggy's functions? Where are the teams of hardware people whose job it is to make sure this parallel hybrid computer is running correctly? And wouldn't they notice some giant weird new processing chip that is not part of the original specs? That's number one. Uh, so that to me kind of takes takes me out of it, right? Now you're you're talking like some of my friends that work in IT who just just see that the rest of the world sees them as well. You're IT, you know technical stuff. That's fine. You only need Ian to know technical stuff. Ian covers everything, <laughs> right? It's right. all IT. Ian, the browser's not working. Can you come and fix this? You've you've got another virus. Did you turn it off and turn it back on again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ian mutters under their breath. So, but the other question I have, all right, so say you did need like the quantum chip to ping Ben anywhere in the timeline, that one in a billion chance that they could retrieve Ben. Now that mm -hmm. we have Ben, 
The Accelerator and Ziggy already know how to track Ben. So why do we even need the chip anymore? Like, can't they just take the chip offline anyway and revert back to the original operating system? Because that seemed to work pretty good in the first season. Which is what they're going to do. Yeah, but in the in the first season, <laughs> they struggled to find Ben. When, how many leaps was it until they got that cool 3D map up? Was that episode two or three? It was quite early on. Are we talking about the slingshot map? Like the stellar cartography slingshot map? <laughs> the stellar cartography scene. Yeah. The card and data sat in a big blue blue screen room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, looking at Viridian exploding. I think that it was probably like episode five or six or I don't know. I have no idea. The first episode, Addison said, look, it took us ages to find you. But then... Yeah, after that, they do seem to figure that out. I was just thinking that stellar cartography map does help them, and they no longer have that because the missions are completed. So there is that as a counterpoint, but that was not discovered immediately. So, And the plot's gone exactly where you're, you're saying, oh, why don't they just do this? Well, that's that's what they're going to do. In fact, it just took them a bit longer to come to that conclusion than maybe they should have done. They're going to reboot Ziggy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, if that is, I'm just going to say right now, fuck you. Honestly, not you, Matt. <laughs> Just in general, general fuck you. Come on. There's, I think there's an episode of season two of Next Gen where they have a computer virus and basically the end of the episode, they (laughs) reboot the computer. (laughs) They just turn it off and turn it back on again. If that is really our solution here for evil magic chip, I'm going to be a little bit annoyed. (laughs) I I, I think they're just going to take the chip out and assume that everything's going to keep working. They can't. Look, I mean, I know the episode you're referring to, and that was the early days of home computing and turn it off and on again. Uh was was a viable plot device that a lot of people would have been going, oh, what an amazing idea. It wasn't the joke that it is now. No, I think now they'll, they'll just yank the chip out and they'll find Ben still and everything will be fine. All right. Well, I just hope they don't belabor it too much. I mean, they're, they're clearly setting this part up for some kind of evil reveal. Anyway, it better be a damn good evil reveal that turns me around Quite the way this episode turned me around on Tom. I'm willing to be turned around. I'm willing to be pandered to and bought and manipulated into liking this plot. If you can pull it off, writers, have at it. I'm your puppet. I'm here. I'm just the receptacle. Rachel's boss is Dr. Lothos. I said Dr. Logan Thos. Yes. So it's going to (laughs) happen. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I'd be, listeners out there, I'd be interested to know what you think about this whole chip subplot, because to me, it seems like maybe the only sticking point in an otherwise really terrific season so far. And it's only become a sticking point for me in this episode because I just found those bits a bit tedious. Yeah, and I, I, I just end that topic on on a slightly more positive note that I think at least they have used that plot device as a device to handle some emotional stuff. It's not just been about a chip. It's also been a trust story between Ian and Rachel. So I've I've appreciated that. However, that that has clearly run its course now because Ian's asked Rachel for help and Rachel said yes. So I, yeah, that, that's kind of come to a climax. So anything more about the chip now won't have that thread running through it as well. You're right, because she said, yeah, anything for you. So Yeah, so I, I, I was maybe more forgiving of the chip plotline than you because I was invested in that that thread that was running alongside it. But that, that thread has now been cut. So 
Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I predict something in 208, since that's the... Well, now we know the mid-season cliffhanger. Now there's going to be a, a, a back half to the season. The mid-season cliffhanger. So I think that will that's, that's where we'll find stuff out about the chip. So not too long to wait. Genuinely a prediction. No inside knowledge. Yeah, none at all. I, it just stands to reason that yes. if this was going to be a planned break anyway, that might have to serve as a season finale because who knew? Mm-hmm. It's almost inevitable in my head. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see. We're talking about the chip and everything, but that's not everything we saw back at the project in this ep. And I loved like the butterfly effect thing. We've been seeing it in the trailer since the beginning of the season. This is the butterfly effect to end all butterfly effects. Our car's going to be flying by the time this is over. They were taking something that was anathema to many Quantum Leap fans that would have changed history majorly for the 20th century, finding this fusion formula for Einstein. Mm -hmm. Did you fear that it was going to go into this big territory and sort of lose the the quantum flavor? Because I know you needed stakes to have that national treasure, Indiana Jones vibe. The reason I'm I'm focusing on this is because there's one line specifically where Jenna's like, by the time we're done with this, we're all going to have flying cars, you know? So it got me thinking, okay, number one, will they let Ben change their present now so radically since Mm -hmm. they're in a future that is not our future? It could conceivably be okay because they're completely removed from our reality. And the other thing is, would they even remember that there was a change? Uh, we discussed this a lot in the novels. What do the people at the project know about the changes in the timeline? Uh, it's sometimes established that only Al knows. Sometimes it's established that everybody who's in the control room sort of knows. And I'm wondering where this series ends up on that. I think we discussed this a little bit last season. Yeah, I mean, I I love the idea of seeing some big changes to the timeline and actually starting to really play with that. Is that Quantum Leap? No. I think if the show starts to go to that point where we do start to see butterfly effect stuff happening and things that Ben is doing affects the future more than just some old lady rocking up, uh, in bad makeup. <laughs> I, I think it will be potentially, I, I have trust in the writers to make a, it a very good show, not just, just not the show that I'm expecting or the show that I fell in love with. So yeah, there's a couple of lines there that did seem to set something like that up or prepare us for the fact that we might see a timeline shift of some sort. I hope if that happens, it's a one episode gimmick that shifts back. But even then, it still it will feel quantum leapy in the way that a lot of season five of the original felt quantum leapy. Okay, like this. Oh, this is quantum leap now. He's a vampire, right? Fine. Um, but <laughs> okay, just just not not the quantum leap wow. that I'm used to. <laughs> I, d- I didn't mean that in a bad way. This, all right, there's good there's good gimmicks in season five as well. But it, it would just feel like a kind of all right. We're seeing how far we can push this as a one off. If they start to actually make that the entire plot line of the show, that then becomes timeless, which I, I loved as a show. So again, if they start going down the timeless route, it could still be a really good show. But if Ben starts changing the history in a way that affects the present day in a big way, and it becomes, all right, if he changes this and then this and then this, then yeah, that, that's where timeless went. And I love timeless. But I, I hope the show doesn't go here too much and we're reading 
a lot into a throwaway line. Yeah, well, that's what we do. Yeah, that's <laughs> we wouldn't have a podcast. To your vampire comment, do you hear that? Listen hard. Can you hear that? That, my friend, is the sound of a single tear rolling down Tommy Thompson's cheek. Oh, he, he, he didn't like Blood Moon either. I mean, I think I like Blood Moon more than he did. I'm sure when we taught, yeah. I was like, I, I was the one saying, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. yeah it's, Tommy, it's okay. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about, you know, that it would sort of change your idea of what Quantum Leap is. But I feel like the butterfly effect has been happening since Starcrossed because we didn't know it until the leap back. But because of Starcrossed, Donna is now at the project. So Sam has been doing that since Leap 1, Leap 2. And we saw Samantha Stratton in Atlantis. So he's actually been doing it since Leap 1, if you think about it, because we have these noticeable changes that you as the viewer pick up on that maybe they know about in-universe, maybe they don't. And then, of course, the whole JFK nonsense with Jackie died in the original Mm -hmm. history. I always thought that was hack, but I'm in a minority there. It's an accepted part of the law, but is it a part of the show? This, to me, is the same sort of argument that I have with fans that say, oh, well, the waiting room was in there through the entire original series. How can they not have the waiting room now? Well, the waiting room was only on screen for five episodes. It was not a, it, it was a part of the law, but it was in the background. So yeah, Chris, what you're saying, yeah, there's been changes to the timeline. We know it's part of the law. Doesn't mean we need to have it thrust in our face as part of the actual, that this is what the show is about. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean there. It's not impossible to happen. Clearly, it's it's consistent. But is it what we want? Is it the kind of story that we want to be seeing? I, I'm sure there's been times in the last year that I've said, I don't want to see a story like this. And then the writers have shown me a story like that. And it's been really good. So I, by all means, guys, prove me wrong. Again, it's it's all fine. But that's that's my current feeling on it. Yeah, and I got to say, as, as a fan, I feel like they pleased both halves of my fandom in the sense that, like you, I don't want to see that happen on Quantum mm. Leap. Quantum Leap's not about that. It's about people. It's about small changes and positive effects in people's lives, rippling kindnesses. That's the way I always felt Quantum Leap was. And But the time travel nerd in me, you know, <laughs> yes. I think they went off about like a completely altered timeline back at the project it would be kind of neat. If it wasn't the whole show, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe when they hit season five, I don't know. And, you know, we could have something like a situation where only Ian can save the day, but then Ben does something that wipes Ian out of the timeline. Yeah, I think you can have those kind of connections where it could be worked into the plot well. It would just still feel wrong, but eh, we'll see. It feel too sci-fi. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to me, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but is it necessarily a quantum leap thing? Yeah, that's a good distinction to make. Yeah, I'm very, well, we're both very nerdy about the sci-fi stuff, and I'll I'll gladly watch a, a film or a show all about that. Well, I mean, and it's funny because we're talking about this, but in a way, the show has already done that because we are watching an alter timeline. So it, it's <laughs> yes. as simple as that. We're already on like second or maybe third timeline or ninth or tenth, depending on that diagram that you made. So, <laughs> but yeah. at, at, well, at, at the very <laughs> least, I mean, this this is all Beth waited for Al, and uh, th- this whole series is set in a post mirror image timeline. Let alone also a post Ian traveling back in time to 
set the whole things in motion time. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's it's right. there. But again, now I know why why magic needed a break. I'm getting a headache. Yeah. <laughs> Only Judgment Day really focused on that. The the series as a whole, just yeah, we don't have to think about it. <laughs> Well, I think what we do have to think about is maybe some final thoughts. We've been going yeah. for over an hour because I knew we would have so much to discuss on this episode. Yeah, I thought this would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Matt, any final thoughts on Secret History? Uh, yeah, just once again, this this was a surprise to me. And I think if I was a, a picky viewer, I might have just thought, yeah, I'll give this a miss. I'll tune back in next week. And I just mean that in the most complimentary way possible, that I was a slightly harder sell on this than I would have been for other episodes and loved it. Just so much fun. It's not the kind of thing we can do week in, week out. Quantum Leap has to be different every week. And this one ticked a lot of boxes. It was fun, exciting, romantic. Two thumbs up. Yeah, everything that you just said. I mean, I I really wish we could find more to criticize here. I feel like yes. we've been unadulterated fanboys. We're like Ben talking about Einstein these last yes. five or six episodes. I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, no. I just no. feel like, and again, this is going to sound like me pandering or being like, you know, because uh, we're about a Quantum Leap podcast. You know, we have no issues with taking the show to task for things that it's done wrong. So maybe I shouldn't have any issues with just saying this season keeps getting better and better. Mm-hmm. Every time I think the last episode is my favorite episode, then Secret History comes along. And I'm like, this is the best episode of the new series. In my opinion, <laughs> it could be one of the best episodes of Quantum Leap that I've yeah. seen. So, yeah. But, and I feel like, is am I gushing? Is it too much? But if I am, I am. That's just how I feel. Like every time, every week, I'm just surprised and new, yes. pleasantly surprised and new at how much I am genuinely enjoying this new season of the show and where the characters are at. And I'm just, I, I lo- I'm loving everything about it. And I'd like to poke gentle fun here and there, but those are just yeah. goofs, you know? They're just like silly goofs. Like, I mean, we, we don't really make fun of the fact that every time they're watching what's happening with Ben back at the project, it's cut like a TV show. <laughs> Kind of, it's kind of like the Star Trek uh, security camera footage is always cut like a TV show. Okay, we get it, you know? <laughs> yes. But if that's my biggest problem, if that's what I have to point my finger at and say, ha ha, Quantum Leap, I think you're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That and Simone Evil Chip. And Simone Evil Chip, yes. And uh, I don't know my other thing here uh, before we go. I, I don't know Rachel's last name, so I call her Rachel Ian Squeeze. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I think that that closes the book on, or is it maybe closes Einstein's journal mm. on secret history? But and sets it every- partly on fire. <laughs> All right. I think you just officially won the episode, but uh, everybody, it's not over yet. Even though Matt just dropped the mic, stay tuned because after the break, we will be bringing you those promised interviews with Drew Lindo, Pamela Romanowski, and Colin Douglas. We'll see you on the flip side. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the Quantum Leap Podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. I'm Jethro. And I'm Matt. And we're the co-hosts of the Drunkard's Walk Podcast. Do you know what the St. Pancras Railway Station, Hydrox Cookies, and the Ragamuffin Cat all have in common? 
They're all pages on Wikipedia. And on Drunkard's Walk, we go from one random Wikipedia page to another only through the internal links of Wikipedia. That's right. And we get those destination pages from guests that come on the show that we talk to and find out why they give us those pages. And there's a little drinking and a lot of arguing. So check out Drunkard's Walk wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, this is Pamela Romanowski, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. All right, listen, I know that we kind of spent the last bit of uh, the discussion (laughs) about time travel stuff, and I just have one question I forgot to ask. So, like, Tom knew where that room was. It was a secret room in Princeton, right? So he had gone up there with his wife to get high, and they found the room and blah, blah, blah. As you do. Shouldn't that room now no, no longer exist? Didn't that room just burn down? What? Are we looking at an original history versus a changed history? And how does that affect? And will Tom eventually forget that there was ever a room there because now his history would have changed? Or did they just rebuild the room and make it secret again somehow? Even well, though there were a bunch of firemen in there? I, the, I'm trying to figure the, that one out. The entrance to the room does change. And that could be an explanation why, if we assume it's some kind of predestination paradox. Also, you know, do rooms really burn down? Like, buildings burn down, but a room, even if they just found this burnt-out husk while they were high, it would still be a room. I don't remember the, the, <laughs> how the structure of the room was left. I feel like they were talking about secret societies and, you know, pulling a book off a shelf a la Scooby-Doo to make a secret <laughs> door swing open yeah. or yeah. in or somehow. Yeah, so... It seemed like more than finding the shell of a burned mm-hmm. out husk. So uh, anyway, that's an interesting, interesting question that I had. And unfortunately, I did not ask her that question <laughs> <laughs> during our interview. Uh, yeah, it's about time we bring everybody this. Is there anything else we need to set this up? Or I don't think so. All right, then. Without further ado, everybody, please enjoy our interview with writer Drew Lindo and director Pamela Romanowski. Hey, this is Matt and Chris with the Quantum Leap podcast, and today we have with us not one, but two key creatives involved in the making of today's episode, Secret History. We have Drew Lindo, the writer, and Pamela Romanowski, the director. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, So we love this episode. We think it's going to be a a hit with the fans. Firstly, can I just ask uh, generally, where d- um, a-, a question for Drew, generally, where did the idea for the episode come up? So uh, you've interviewed some of the other writers before, so I'm sure they've told you we have sort of a leap board with different ideas that we discuss as a room over the course of making the show that we hope to get to at some point. One of those ideas um, for me certainly was an Indiana Ben kind of episode because I definitely <laughs> wanted to see Ben punch a Nazi. Um, but these are things that are just living in the abstract until you have like a real story to attach them to. Um, but also on a historical level, I was really interested in exploring Operation Paperclip at some point on the show because it's, it's a piece of history that a lot of people, including members of our crew, are not familiar with. People are like, is this real? And it is. So I knew those were two things I wanted to do. And a challenge that I'd gotten from uh, one of our showrunners, Martin Gira, was how do we do that on a on a television budget and production schedule. Like you can't just build giant caves and have rolling balls trying to crush Raven Lee. So that was, that was a little bit off the table uh, until I started researching um, Princeton in the 1950s and realized that 
it was basically the most exciting place in America and even in the world in terms of scientific breakthroughs with fusion, research, Einstein. So it suddenly became a great way to sort of take the energy and the feeling of, you know, pulpy indie sort of adventure, a little bit of Oppenheimer as well, but put it through more of a Da Vinci Code lens of like, what if it's in academia? What's in libraries? What if we take it through that place and kiss with the history of the actual luminaries of science who were working at that time? So it just was a way to sort of get to those ideas. And it felt like a rich period in time to explore through the lens of our show, which is something we can do very well. So that's, that's sort of the genesis of it. That's really interesting. I was wondering about the the level of research that you had to do, uh, that both of you would have had to do for this episode. Um, it sounds like you, you already had some of this in your head anyway. So I, I'll ask both of you, but starting with Drew, um, how, how much additional research did you have to do to, to bring this to the screen? Um, I did a lot on two fronts. One was just really diving into Princeton at the time and Einstein and how they were actually, I mean, Einstein didn't actually work for Project Matterhorn, which is also real, which is also going on at Princeton, but they did, they were on the same campus. And like the actual director, who's not in the show, but the actual director of Matterhorn would go and see him speak. So like reading all about the people and, the, and, and what they were going through. And also there's a lot of history that did not make it into the show. that was fascinating to me. Like Einstein did get involved with a female Russian spy named Margarita. Like there's a lot more. You could do a whole movie about what I was researching, but also, um, I, because I had known nothing about how to dramatize physics on screen, I reached out to an amazing resource we have um, out here called the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which pairs scientists uh, in different fields with writers for TV and film to help them have more accurate information. So I found this amazing um, woman named Dr. Stephanie Diem, who is, um, she teaches physics and she works on actual fusion research, a different, different kind than what we show on our, our show different construction, but, um, but she actually got her PhD at Princeton. So she became like the perfect, you know, reference point uh, for, you know, researcher and, and consultant for like, you know, how do we accomplish this and this, like we had placeholders in the story that would need, we're definitely going to need some equations. We're definitely going to need something here uh, in this clock beat, for example. And so talking to someone who really knew the physics and, and helped me build a fake, you know, doomsday formula was uh, pretty integral <laughs> to pulling the episode off. And Pamela, for you, I mean, stepping into a, an, an ongoing TV series, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure most TV shows you could step into would be modern day, um, some, some sense of reality around it. What did you have to do to prepare for stepping into a, the 1950s and the world of Quantum Leap? And I'm very conscious this is not your first rodeo with Quantum Leap, and I'm, I'm itching to talk about Leap Die Repeat as well, but maybe later oh, amazing yeah i'd love to so um yeah i mean that's that's a huge part of the fun of this show is that every episode is the opportunity to dive into a new world i love world building i love to approach um the visual style and the look and feel of the episode from character psychology um so for me that always leads um i had an invaluable resource in drew who told me all kinds of wonderful stories about this time and you know how he developed the script um, but our, you know, the first time we met up, we just had coffee, you know, before the shoot started. And he told me, you know, this is, I want this to be like Indiana Jones, but starring a Hitchcock blonde. And I was like, done two favorite things. Here we go. Um, so that was kind of our, you know, our touchstone for how this episode should look and feel, you know, it's a little bit different from other episodes in, it just has this like wonderful Spielberg adventure romance. 
tone to it. So that was really fun to explore. Um, on the hard physics side, in a previous life, um, I would have been a scientist. I was actually pre-med in college and took all kinds of physics and chemistry. My undergrad degrees are psychology, biology, chemistry, and my older brother is a physicist. So small shout out to him. There's like, you know, we were picking a little uh, end caps in the physics library. I was like, hey, Mark, uh, what should these say? <laughs> what are different disciplines of physics? Um, and there's one that says microfluidics, which was his original discipline. Um, so it was actually fun to just ask him questions about this time and get kind of nerdy on the physics part of it. Um, but yeah, it was so much fun to research. I mean, that's, I love prep. I love pulling together imagery. I use shot deck a lot. Um, the DP Anna is also amazing. And, you know, not all of the references are direct. Sometimes it's in the moment, like, you know, the, the opening with that sort of shadowy gate that's from the exorcist. Um, but in terms of tone and visual style is really like that shot from Indiana Jones. That's like amber light pouring through the stained glass in the library. Um, so that kind of determined like, what is the feeling what is this romantic adventure going to be like and what should the whole episode look like? I was very lucky by the way, to get Pamela as my director because she absolutely understand, understood just the, the tone and the, and the, and the emotional feeling that the episode needed to, to bring. And, and she brought that from herself as a, as a creative, she brought that to the piece as did Anna, our amazing DP. And so it really, everybody was chasing a feeling, but through this visual art form that directors and directors of photography can actually shepherd and organize and she did such an amazing job but it was it was just incredible to have somebody there especially you know heading into a writer's strike where we couldn't even touch episodes in post it, this is one of the rare times where I, I was like i really trust this director because i've seen her eye and i've seen the way she works on this project and she totally sees it, the best possible version of it and she executed it beautifully uh drew we had a great time drew is best time. Best just time. my favorite well, it, it's funny you mentioned uh, Indiana Jones and that amber light because so much of this reminded me of that scene when he's in the library with the X marks the spot and he breaks the marble floor. <laughs> yeah. So um, if that's what you were going for, you got it. You nailed it. Um, one of the um, main things that I noticed with this episode, though, um, it's kind of a departure from the, the episode so far this season because not only do we get a healthy dose of Hannah again, but we also bring... Tom into the story in a really big way. So um, for Drew, I guess, was there a challenge in writing those two characters at not the expense, but more of a showcase for them as opposed to our regular Quantum Leap family back at HQ and Pamela? I mean, the nuances between Ben and Hannah, between Ben and Tom, I'd, uh, I'd like you to talk about how you approach directing those scenes to establish those characters more for the viewers. I loved, I loved both of those storylines. I think, you know, Ben and Hannah, um, I'm trying to talk about it with no spoilers, um, such a beautiful and important storyline. And I think that it's a really important reveal of a part, a side of Ben that we haven't gotten to see before. I will say when we shot the last scene, we shot that, I believe day two. And there's one specific shot that I was really looking forward to. And Drew and I both looked at each other at the monitor and I cried while we were shooting it. It's just beautiful. Um, I love their story. Um, the other side of Ben that we haven't often gotten to see is what comes out with Tom. Ben is 
you know, the consummate good guy, there's not a lot of room for him to have flaws, to have feelings, to have, um, you know, he faces every challenge with grace and integrity and he does that, but it's really nice to see him struggle with that. So um, in his scenes with Tom, I think, you know, director catnip is friction in the scene. So having this friction between them to play with, like, you know, how, how is each trying to maintain the power? How is each trying to suss the other out? You know, how is Tom trying to diffuse Ben? How is Ben trying to establish dominance and power here, but also realizing Tom actually does have something that he needs? Um, and then also just deciding how much of yourself to reveal in those moments. You know, it's all, it's all in subtext. It's all in what they don't say. It's in body language. It's an eye contact. It's when, you know, all, all of these mini challenges are so interesting to work with. Um, and of course, Ray's an absolute dream and I love working with him and it was fun to see Peter, you know, like try to get under his skin a little bit and mm. see how Ray reacted to that. Um, <laughs> you know, there are, all, there are little scenes where, you know, we just shoot kind of improv reactions to things and kind of let, let that side of Ben come out. Like he, he's got some claws. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. I, if, if I can remind you before Drew, before you go, Pamela, we, we have seen the episode, this will air after the episode. So it, oh, you can feel okay. free about, about saying which, which scene made you mm-hmm. cry. Oh, because okay. I think In we'd really case, like to know. <laughs> yes. So the final scene where they're walking through the campus and, uh, she says, can I ask you one question about the future? He says, yes. And she says, what is your name? Mm-hmm. I it, it just gets me that the most important thing to her, not nuclear science, not world wars, mm-hmm. not changing the outcome for herself or someone else is to know this person. I think that's so beautiful. That's love. Yeah, we um, that moment was very, very special because also the way we had scheduled that day, you usually don't want to put your most important scene at the end of the day because you don't know how much time you'll have left when you finally get there based on how a day can go on the schedule. So, um, but our DP had said, listen, the, the lighting will be perfect for that moment if we wait till the end of the day. And I was over here just biting my nails, but it was a really powerful moment. And, and the lighting, everything just landed just perfectly. It was like our, we, we talked about it as our before sunrise moment at the, at the end of the episode. But on the character level of, of talking, you know, taking through these two new points of view for the show, um, you know, as a room, we know we've talked about a season and we know there are certain moments we need to hit throughout the season. So we knew this was going to be the episode that would reintroduce Hannah and the construction of two Oh three closure encounters was that she's just sort of in the periphery of the story. She's not mm-hmm. the main person of the week that Ben needs to help, but she makes a distinct impression. This episode I knew from the beginning was going to be Hannah's step into the limelight as this really key player in Ben's story. So a big part of the design of the story is how do we, how do we bring her in in a way that makes an audience and makes Ben really become quite taken with who she is as a person and her spirit. And a lot of times characters in the show are people who are struggling, who are, in, you know, they've got a dream, they've got a want, they've got a, you know, a bad future ahead of them and Ben's trying to help them avoid it. And um, what's been great about the Hannah story was that, well, first of all, I had an enormous amount of help in terms of figuring out who she was from, from Dean Georgeris, our co-showrunner, who had written you know, audition sides for the character at the beginning of the season and had also written other materials, you know, letters from her point of view and things like that that really just created a very sharp, clear picture of who this person was, but also that we were not going to make her a traditional, I don't even want to say damsel in distress, but she's not 
she doesn't know that her future is not looking bright. And that created something new for the show, too, which is someone who thinks their whole future is ahead of him. And Ben knows better. We know better. And that created, you know, an emotional attachment to somebody without sacrificing their light and their energy. So it was a joy to write this moment, not just for her character, but also for Ben's, who's really in the first half of the season going through this, this really heartbreaking loss. And so the whole design of this episode is how do we create this journey back into the light for Ben of just rocketing back up into, into that place that we know and love him to be. So that, that was all very exciting and very fun. Tom, on the other hand, was a thing where, like, you know, Tom is a foil to what Ben wants, right? Ben wants to be back with the love of his life and can't be because she's with someone she can actually have a life with. So I believe it was Martin Giro who was, like, our co-showner who said, can Tom get in the chamber? And my first instinct, almost as a protective fan of Ben Addison, was like, why? It's too soon. And then I realized, like, well, we're kind of halfway through the season. It's probably not too soon. So, so then even like if you're root, you know, you might be rooting for Ben and Addison, but as a writer, you need to, you need to fight for each character you're writing. So then it became, well, how do I give Tom the most emotional revealing story? Cause he's so, he's so, um, capable and so like unflappable all season. He's totally fine. He's totally fine with this whole completely messed up situation that none of us would be fine with, but he's totally fine. So for me, my challenge is like, well, how do we get, how do we use the fact that he's a foil in the story, which again, as Pamela pointed out, it's great to see Ben not like somebody because it happens so rarely. But then also, how do we make this episode special for him? And the idea that like this is the place where he fell in love with his wife, who is no longer here, became it just added another layer to the story of like this is a you know for me thinking back college for me it was film school very romantic time very exciting time discussing ideas collaborating meeting people like you so all those feelings you want to recreate from your own experience in the world of you know science and physics we were doing that but also through tom it's there's a forlorn quality right because that's that's a painful past now good memories become painful um when we lose people so these are challenges on the story level like how do we and and also you know we didn't you know ernie was was unavailable for the episode so we had a void to fill using tom so there was it really created new storytelling opportunities they're challenges but but the results are were really fruitful and and um, and really made both characters much more more uh, winning I think to the audience's eyes. I'm really interested in that uh, the the development of Hannah that you you were talking about earlier. Um, obviously, yeah, you, you said Dean set the scene for that, but I'm sure Drew in your head you were already starting to think ahead to what you were going to be writing for 206, how that was going to be playing out. When 203 was being broken in the room, did, did you feel a bit of a, a, a desire to push more for this is what I think Hannah should be doing? Or were well, you- well, I think I think what attracted me to the story in general that felt super personal th- that I loved, because I would say that the Hannah story is definitely that's that's a Dean and Martin, you know, that was the, their their idea for the season. And, uh, and when I heard it, it was like it tapped into these. I've had experiences in my life where you have a short amount of time with somebody. And it's very, it's very profound. Whether you, you know, whether you can stay with somebody or not, you can have these moments that really can have a positive and amazing effect on you. So that feeling of the value of one human being to another and, and how, how special that can be. I, I, and the finite feeling that fleeting finite romance feeling, I was so excited to tell that story because it felt very personal. But then for six, it was like, I wanted to, it was that transition from the background of the story to the limelight of the story. And so one of the first things that came to mind was like, 
this playful beat with the accelerator and and the, and the magnetic uh, field with the watch was like, okay, she's having she's there's something playful and beautiful and fun about her even in this you know academic world. And so the more I lean into that and that she has this spark that is really vital to Ben right now in his story, the sadder it is the idea that it could be extinguished or she could be held back or not be or be killed because this is uh, this is a person who deserves to have a great future. So um, yeah, it was it was just my I love telling genre sci-fi stories and I love telling love stories. So this was just my dream episode in a lot of ways because I got to do both. And it's a story we wouldn't have been able to tell in season one because of where Ben and Addison were. So this already gives us really fresh ground for our iteration of the show. I was just going to say, Drew, I think one of your best scenes in this and certainly one of my favorite to direct is um, Ben and Hannah in Lawrence's apartment, finding the clues, finding the journal, and just watching the way that they fall in love by sharing ideas. You know, you're talking about the romance of academia, of film school for us. Um, there's something so beautiful about that kind of love story. There's such peers. It's like a specific kind of soulmate. It's a specific facet yeah. of love. Um, and it's just so wonderfully done. We had a great time shooting that scene. And, you know, we've seen Ben in love, of course, I, I stand Addison, <laughs> but um, getting the opportunity to see him fall in love or fall, you know, begin a crush, we'll say, um, yeah. and seeing him become, you know, his heart open to a new person. I think that's just the most fascinating kind of scene to direct. You're seeing someone make this major realization in real time. Um, and I, you know, I just love some of those little moments where it's like, uh, he's like, don't you need the journal? And she's like, I have a photographic memory and just, you know, raise a little reaction to that. It's like, oh, shit, <laughs> who is this lady? Again, this is, I mean, not only did Pamela direct the hell of the episode on set and that was especially that scene, which P Pamela block shot. And so it was like, we got to watch this. It's when you put all those, both of those scenes together, it's a big scene. It felt like we were watching Ray and Eliza do theater that night it was really exciting. But but what she really what's really hard to get directing TV because the schedule is so intense are, you know, directors will come in and it's difficult for them because they come in to like the machines running and there's so little time. It's really hard to get the moments and the little beats between the story plot points, right? To get those moments on camera that really are that people remember and really talk about. And and Pamela got that every single day on set. She never sacrificed the moments that were that were really special, just moments of human behavior. And then in the edit as well, like that little shot of Ben reacting to him not being the only person with a photograph memory is super sweet. Um, so it was, it was wonderful to see her really have that attention to detail, not just on set, but in the cut when I, cause I didn't get to work on it at all. So when I finally watched it, I was like, Oh, thank God. Like all these things that I, I mean, I was on set, I was seeing us get it, but I was just so happy to see it all the way she constructed it with our um, editor uh, Piper was just, elegant and just so involving. And like you said, we didn't get to see Ben and Addison fall in love. We picked up with them already engaged in season one. So to see it, see this happen for the first time, see this romance develop on camera was a really exciting thing to write. That, that brings to mind something that I've been noticing this season. It seems like this season is a bit more adventurous. The leaps seem a little bit bigger. I think there's a number of factors that go into that, um, probably mostly because we're not having one mission that Ben is on now. It can be more expansive. And the entanglement with Addison is he, like you said, he's kind of unfettered at this point, but with these, these 
these broader leaps, these these more adventurous leaps. Um, Drew, to your point, um, Pamela, I would like I would like to ask. You wanted to make this more of a sweeping adventure piece, but you knew that you also had to do some of the most intimate character stuff we've seen so far this season outside of Ben and Addison. So um, how did you approach making that balance that Drew was just speaking about? Because I felt like the episode didn't sacrifice one for the other. It worked on both levels very well. And that had to be uh, some, you know, how much planning did you have to put into that? And what kind of thought process did you need for that? Mm. I'm a pretty obsessive planner uh, when I'm in prep. And so I do um, like a psychotically detailed daily plan and shot lists. Um, and then of course you throw anything away that doesn't feel right in the moment. Um, but for me, there's, you know, the shot list is really important how we're constructing the shots so that we can be extremely efficient and get the scale that we need on the timeline that we have. Um, but in the moment to me, the show ultimately is about the humanity, the behavior, these moments, these exchanges, you know, words like realization, you know, that's what I'm looking for in every scene. So more important than my shot list every day is, you know, what is the meat of the scene? What are these moments? What is someone realizing or deciding? And you need to see that decision being made. You need to see the pros and cons being weighed and you need to see the decision being executed. To me, that's acting, seeing you know, the decision committed to. Um, so I think most of my directing is is more about asking the choice to change slightly um, because these actors are also committed. You know that you're going to see the decision being made. Um, small things like, again, in this last scene, um, Ben is also deciding how much of himself to reveal, of course, to Hannah in the moment, but the meta version is to us. We know that his job is so deeply lonely. You know, he talks about, I meet these people and I never see them again. Um, and I guess we know that in theory, but but Ben deciding to reveal that side of himself is a big decision um, and it carries weight. And so to me, that was one of the more important moments of the script. Obviously, it's so much fun to burn Einstein's office down. And I, there's a technical side of directing that I absolutely love. I'm such a nerd. I love planning those things. I love stunt days. Um, but I do think the heart is in these moments where you get to see a character reveal something to the audience via another character that you didn't previously know. And I think until we were watching that scene and saw Ray performing it, you know, it just, it hit me on such a deep level, what his, what his deep loneliness and what, what it is that Ben is facing. If I can speak to that for one second, part of what, what Pam was talking about was I was sort of channeling what it's like to work on Quantum Leap because for us and for Ray, like we, we do get these amazing people like John Chafin, who is in um, somebody up there likes Ben, oh. our boxing episode. I, I absolutely, John and I really hit it off, but I was just so moved by what he brought to that part. And, and I put a lot of heart into the story, but you get these people who are just so fantastic, really care about the craft, really elevate the episode, and then they're gone. And I don't get to work with John Chapin again. And it's a, it's a bummer. Uh, and so for me, it was like channeling that reality into the actual reality that Ben has. And I think when we do reach for those emotional bits of reality and just sprinkle them into a, a fun and, and transporting escapist bit of, you know, sci-fi, you know, adventure stuff. It just makes it all feel richer. And so I was, 
I, I find it very bittersweet. The job of a leaper is a bittersweet thing, which is like, you can have these, incre- I mean, it's probably a lot like being an actor. You can have these really intense, intimate relationships for a short time and then it's over and it's gone and you never go back. And so finally having this orbit that's happening with somebody that Ben can see again, it's really special. So I was, again, an honor to write, but also to get into, into Ben's heart and Ben's head. And I thought Raymond was absolutely, ne- I mean, he's so great to see. He's always been great, but I feel like he and Caitlin both have been so terrific this season with the material they've been given. But I felt like, this was a chance to show the yearning. Like one of my favorite scenes in the episode, which is originally broken up into multiple scenes. We had to condense it into one for production is the scene in the hallway where he accidentally says her name and she's like, have we met before? And, and you just see this moment on Ray's face where he desperately would love to tell somebody, I know you, you know me, I'm, but he can't. And you, it's just, it's so heartrending to see that, that moment of temptation and see it go. And so by the time we get to that moment in the big scene at Rollins's apartment, it's just, we're so primed for Ben to have something that he wants. And it's always, what do I want that I cannot have? And this is the episode where he gets it just a little taste. I'd like to go back to something uh, Pamela mentioned earlier. You you described yourself as, uh, or your work as psychotically detailed. Uh, I think Chris Grisma described you as meticulous. Oh, Um, nice. I'll take it. Going into... uh, (laughs) Going into this episode, did you know that the writer strike was coming up and you were likely to be working without Drew in the edits? And how differently did you prepare for that? How did that feel, that experience, as opposed to something like Leap, Die, Repeat, where I guess you were working with the writer uh, right the way through end to end? What? Yeah. What uh, yes, like we all knew the writer strike was impending. Um, and sometimes writers are involved in the edit, sometimes not. Um, I always would like for them to be and make sure that they're invited to be. Um, doing this without Drew was sad. <laughs> I Drew and I really had a special bond. And so um, it, even more than having the writer of this episode, it's like, this is the person whose imagination this came from, who I trust and respect so much. And has become a close friend. So it was it was a bummer to not be able to edit with him. However, you know, I come from a conservatory background. I uh, did my MFA at NYU, did the Sundance Labs. Um, I am, uh, you know, a, well, I'm a filmmaker in a, sort of a holistic sense. Um, at, as That was my training. So editing for me is very much part of directing. I've never missed an edit day in my life. Like I'll, I'll be on a different show editing at night. Do not miss editing. It's, it's such an important part of the job. Um, that said, I always come in with a plan for the edit and I've always been pretty clear, you know, with the script supervisor and in my own notes, which takes, I think I'm going to use what the transitions are. Um, so from the first, well, the first reading of the script, I just enjoy it. The second reading of the script you know, I go through the margin and I just write what, you know, when I'm playing the movie in my imagination, what shots do I want to see when the final cuts usually pretty, or my cut is usually pretty similar to that. Um, And, you know, the, I guess the difference is usually uh, the episode is way over time. And so I would deliver something in my director's cut. That's here's the whole episode with not a single word or moment cut. And then also here's something cut more to time that I think you'll like. Ideally, the last day at least of the edit I'm sharing with the writer and the showrunner so they can say, here's what I've done so far. What are you liking? Is there anything that you'd like me to focus on this last day? 
Um, so it, yeah, it was a bummer to be there without Drew. However, I'm super comfortable um, directing and edit and leading that ship. So I felt pretty confident Drew was going to be psyched on this edit. And, um, you know, I couldn't tell him much about it, but I was just like, Drew, I feel good. <laughs> yeah, she, I mean, that. again, it's very rare to have that level of trust with, with you know, it's just because part of our job is is to is to really help mold an, an episode in the editing room. So, but I, again, couldn't have thought of anybody better to, to, to take it across the finish line. And also to speak to her meticulous planning. I just want to say like a big part of the episode involved like a window and, uh, and literally Pamela mocked up her version of what it would look like color palette, like everything. And like to help art department come up with like what, what this iconic clue was going to look like, you know, in, in the episode. And I was kind of stunned. Like it was just, she kept refining it like on her tablet. So it's just one example of her attention to the detail of, of the world building and the visual presentation. And again, like, you know, we got to do, I just love the choice of like, we're in some more medium wides in this episode when we're going through the, the library. So you're feeling the space because it was, the art department did an amazing job. And I do want to shout out, like, I feel like our entire crew, you know, this was a hard episode to pull off. Um, doing Princeton in the fifties in New Jersey on, in LA is not easy to pull off. We didn't have access to a lot of campuses that we could have really utilized. So our costumes from Genevieve Tyrell, our art department, Mei Ling, like we had so many people really, uh, our props, Eric, who did an amazing job recreating the Stellarator. Like there's just so many people really, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the photography and the lighting, like everybody worked really hard to give it the best possible presentation and to really sell it. And I was, I was shocked. Like even when we were scouting, there was certainly a day with Pamela and I was like, I don't know if we're going to find Princeton for this episode. It's going to be very sad if we can't. And, uh, but Pamela was always like very confident we could figure something out. And we found this location um, and you start putting picture cars and the costumes. So you feel like you're, you know, you're making a real movie all of a sudden. So it was, it was quite an experience. Yeah, the, the setting was very effective, and um, I, I really did feel like this was one of the more period-feeling pieces of the series so far, even though it was very subtle. It's not like Vegas in the 70s, but, uh, you know, it did have its own distinct flavor. I want to, Drew, ask you a bit more about the Tom character, because we spoke to uh, the Ben and Hannah relationship, but I have to imagine that writing for Tom is very difficult, because sometimes he seems impossibly patient and impossibly nice. And do you ever have, like, the the urge to have him say what goes on here, why I'm in, in the middle of this, and then also... I mean, it seemed to me at the end of this episode that word under any other circumstance, like Ben and Tom would be like the best of friends. So what were you trying to balance there? Like what kind of considerations did you have to make in, in writing that character and threading that needle? That's a great question. I, I definitely felt like, you know, we, there was, there was sort of, you know, we, there was a strong idea of who Tom was and that he would not be somebody who would, that he was a person of integrity and um, kind of, patience and almost a philosoph- philosophical outlook on all this. I thought the, like that moment in 204 when he's talking about the cost, what a sacrifice is, is, you know, integral to what quantum leap is. So that's all great. But for me as a human being, it's like, but what is underneath all that? Like you, you the people who, who are the, the most Zen have the most going on under the surface. So I was very interested to explore, um, not just what makes him tick, but what is actually what, what those vulnerabilities are that are not being shown so far, because he ha- he's in a position of leadership and he's in this relationship with Addison where they've both gone 
through mutual loss before meeting one another. And she's going through a very tumultuous situation. So he has to be the mountain to the weather in that dynamic and, and in the, with a team. So for me, it was like, well, how do we get underneath that without it being like, we're not going to see Tom like break down and have, you know, a, a meltdown, but like what, what could chip away at that exterior? And so getting, getting into the history of him and his wife, but also, um, using Ben's point of view for the audience to humanize him was just such a really fun challenge because like, if your team, Ben and Addison, you do not like this guy, like how dare he come in and support her after three years of grief, you know, how dare he make her happy. So there was something so great about using Ben's own frustration and dislike of Tom to slowly earn his respect for the audience as well. Right. Which is that this person, you know, we, we all, there's, there's, there's a, a fun mini theme in the episode of like asking for help is actually a good thing. You know, relying on other people is a good thing. You know, Ian is relying on Rachel in a way that they've not before. And it really helps in a big way. And same with Ben is asking for Hannah's help in a way that his host probably did not in 1955. So the fact that like the person you like the least in this world is actually helping you um, save the day and do something important was a great way to, to get at some of that buddy comedy kind of slight chemistry, but also for Addison, who is, been comforted so much for her to show him comfort was a really interesting dimension to play. And I thought Caitlin did all those scenes so beautifully. And so like, she's just so centered and, and so, and just listening and being so responsive in the moment to a person who is telling us everything's okay. And you don't always have to pretend that when, when it's not the case. So they're just ways to humanize the character that feel real to me and, and, um, and were a joy to watch. I also think, Drew, to your credit, you used the physicality of being a hologram to such great effect. Because in this episode, Tom is going to get humbled. And you're right. He's a guy who does not do vulnerability, but he also is not bad at things ever. This is a guy whose MO is I'm capable. You know, that's his leadership style. That's where his confidence comes from. So seeing him be a beginner at something God, yeah. that's humbling. You know, he, every time is, you know, the handshake, his hand goes yeah, through just, the book. Like he's just, he's not crushing it. And it's, it'd be hard not to feel for that guy. And then of course you add, you know, the emotional context of where he is and what it means to him and all these memories that are sort of invading the present all the time. Like he's on his back foot through the whole episode. And that's a guy who's not used to that. Which makes us kind of start to care about him too, right? That he's not so, he's not so perfect. Also, it's fun too that he's coming from more of a military background, where he would think the person who's reporting to him can do these things that Ben is not trained to do. So again, all these little ways of getting at like who Tom actually is, and it not being the perfect marriage in this situation, but it does. They find their way. Ben learns to listen over the course of the episode to Tom, and and Tom learns to to open up. I think that was um, really evident at the end of the episode because going in, we didn't know much about Tom and I was on team. I don't mind Tom, but I don't really know him. I think this is the first time I've ever really actually kind of warmed to the character. So mm. if that yeah. was your goal, uh, mission accomplished, at least for this viewer. Thank you. Thank you That's Bruce. great. Thank you. Drew, you had alluded to the scenes with Ian and Jen and Rachel. And this, if, if we have another lingering back at the project storyline this season. So far, it's that quantum chip. So um, I'm wondering how much of that is decided beforehand, and then you have to work it into a certain episode, like we have to hit this post, say, in 206. And how does that affect your approach to the writing? This is a, a question that we also asked um, Ben and Derek 
for their episode. I know that when you're in the room, you have the leak board, but you probably also have how the season is going to be broken down and where you need to be by each episode, depending on how many you have. So is that stuff that is is put upon you as a writer? Like, okay, I want to tell this this adventure leap about Ben and the Da Vinci Code, Indiana Jones feel in the 50s, but at the same time, we have to advance some of the main plot details in the present, or I guess now they're in the future. Um, how, do you, right. how do you strike that balance? Well, part of it, it's less being sort of foisted on you and more sort of like, you're imagining yourself as the viewer of the show that you're making. So, you know, if we last heard about this in four and now it's six and we don't, you know, go back to the story, it's starting, it's going to feel like, I don't know, you know, what, what, what story is this and what does it matter if we don't continue telling it? So there is that aspect. And then also it, it became a really great way to sort of upset the leap itself. Um, I think it's okay for me to say this, but we, you know, there were points where Ian was going to be the hologram at first and they were going to get pulled out for different reasons. And then for scheduling reasons, it became Jen as the hologram instead of Ian. So that all changed. But the story was always something where like a problem outside in quantum leap HQ was going to upset the leap and force us into a situation where Tom would have to step in because there's no, you know, Addison's off the books, magic's away and Ian and Jen were going to run into this problem. So it, it started out as like, well, this is, we have to continue the story that it actually really fed the episode, right? Because it, it's a, you're in a first time in a situation where Addison's holding a hand like it doesn't know who to give it to because we are, we are so understaffed at that moment. So it, it, it really helped generate story and beyond where the ship story is going, which I can't really get into, it just became a really great way to advance Ian and Rachel's relationship, right? Because this is a recurring problem. Um, uh, I'm not sure how much Pamela wants to talk about Ian and Rachel uh, scenes, but, um, cause she's directed more than one, but you know, that is, that has been a refrain in their, in their dynamic. And so to see, and, and, and it parallels the leap, right? The technology falling into the wrong hands being a, a major, the major threat of, of the leap itself, we're seeing it play out, you know, it's the same problem, uh, decades and decades later, right. That it, people will always try to control something that is of great value, great power. So it was, it became a, a great character story for Ian, but it, um, it's also part of something larger that uh, I probably can't tell you anything about. <laughs> I was going to say, um, and I was waiting to see if Drew was going to say anything about it, but um, just to shout out Drew and Martin and Dean, um, but especially Drew, there's a pretty major revision that had to happen at the last minute as all things do in TV. And so watching them figure out gracefully how to, um, you know, like the script has been so dialed in. Everything speaks to the theme. Every scene has six different things going on. There's friction, there's tension, the wants and the obstacles are so clear. And then it's like, boom, schedule curveball. Um, you know, Jen's going. <laughs> um, and it was, just, it was really cool to see them work under that intense pressure. It was also in this moment where the writer strike was looming and, you know, part of, part of the language was like, Hey, it's really important that writers be on set. The writing has continues to happen during production, which is 100% true. And it was just cool to see such a vivid example of that happening and to see why it is that writers need to be on set because writing also happens during the production. It, we, it truly, we were getting ready to shoot rock, paper, scissors, and Ian was supposed to win. And then it was like, Actually, Jen is going to win today. So it, it completely changed. And But to the episode's credit, I think, and, and I originally thought, like, this would be a great leap for these two friends to go on together who are total nerds about Einstein. 
But what it gave the episode is a. I think uh, I think Marissa is fantastic in the episode. She's and she brings an outside perspective. Right? She's not part of the the science nerd community. Who's so she's for her. It's a steampunk hamster mix, you know. But it it, there, it brings a, a a nice contrast to Ben. Part of the fun of the episode also is like Ben is psyched about this leap. How often is he like psyched to be somewhere as opposed to like, you know, having an oh boy reaction. But this time it's like, I can't believe I'm here. So to have someone just thinking like my sweet summer child, I'm so glad you're enjoying your lifelong dream <laughs> that I don't totally understand that I'm going with it. it. It just brought some great stuff. And Martin and Dean both had some great jokes that they injected into the script that day just to help help with this new reaction. Because it wasn't Ian there to say, here's the calculation for why you're here. Um, it was it was Jen, and so she. I, I just and I love seeing them together. And her that moment with him in the library, where he's clearly starting to wrestle with feelings about Hannah and her fate. Um, I thought Anderson did did that scene so beautifully, and, and really centered the episode. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I love that moment where she said, "Oh, if if I were Ian, I'd have a a very precise answer for you, but I'm not, yeah. so I don't." Right. <laughs> Yeah. Especially knowing that background, that's a really nice moment. Also the little thing where she checks her phone and he's like, You brought your phone in here? (laughs) (laughs) I love how And we're like, wait, you could have your phone in the hologram? Okay. Mm -hmm. Very professional. Yeah, I loved it. And I think the using you know, the crew, the HQ crew is kind of falling apart and scrambling and having that sort of scrambly Mm -hmm. energy in this action adventure episode is really nice. Yeah, so many moving parts that came together so well in this one. So um, I guess this this would be more for Drew. Um, this episode seems indicative of a trend we've seen this season for sort of more adventurous leaps. And I'm wondering when you guys are breaking the season, are there types of things now that Ben can leap out of his own lifetime, which was a restriction that Sam had that sort of kept everything grounded in maybe the latest back to the 50s. Do you ever say to yourself, oh, um, we could do this, but maybe we shouldn't. And maybe that's a bigger question, but I'm thinking like we're going back to like 1692, apparently from the trailers and the Salem witch trials. And that's like the furthest we've ever seen anybody leap back on the program. Do we ever say dinosaurs? No, dinosaurs. No, forget dinosaurs or, you know, <laughs> dinosaurs, shocker, not the most producible thing uh, on a television budget. But, uh, <laughs> no, I think, I, I think it's twofold. One is, you know, at the end of the day, we have two really, really smart, really talented show owners who know whether a leap feels right for the show or not. So if we're pitching dinosaurs, they're going to tell us if that's um, a good idea or a terrible one. Um, secondly, I think it's just a matter of like, wh- what can we, what can we really pull off and what can we, what can we produce that can feel really satisfying and that you can feel immersed in as opposed to like this, I don't buy that they're in the Roman empire or whatever that is. Like it's, it, you know, it depends on what we can achieve with our, with our resources and with our teams and, and with, what we have at our disposal. And then I'd say a bigger thing for me personally, I don't know if this is for the room, but just for me, I think like historically speaking, I never want to um, put Ben somewhere to change history that we need or that is important. You know, there's a reason why the scale of the leaps need to be human and and like this, as opposed to like prevent world war, you know, because then it's, first of all, we don't want to unwrite our own history because we, it's important, whether it's good or bad, it's important. Um, and so but we can tackle microcosms of these things. And, and so, like, you know, was, you know, was Paperclip involved with Project Matterhorn? No, but they were super involved in NASA. And we're not going to undo, like, the foundation of NASA. But we can give our viewers a little bit of a, 
a peek behind historical curtain and still give them a sense of justice and, and, and happiness at the end of, of the story. So I think it's really about picking moments in time that feel like they're, they're close to what we want to explore. We can produce it in a way that makes sense. And then it can tell a story that is really satisfying and, and exciting for us to want to go to. Because I think a lot about of TV's appeal is like, do I want to go there? And I think we have a lot of those leaps of the season of like, this is a place you want to go. And I think six, seven, eight are all really have really interesting locations and, and space time to go to. And I'm thinking for Pamela as a director, and this is also something I'm sure the writers have to consider too, but I mean, Quantum Leap is Quantum Leap. So no matter where you go, you want it to feel like Quantum Leap. Um, when you were directing the episode, this is uh, your second one you did, Leap to I Repeat, were there certain touchstones in your mind that make something Quantum Leap as opposed to not Quantum Leap? I know that might be an impossible mm. question to answer, but it's because it, it's so ineffable. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the beauty of the show is that it always has the, you know, the HQ quantum leap present tense storyline. And then there's something that's totally different. So yes, you need that touchstone. The HQ, ha I mean, there's always like what angles haven't we seen? And is there a more interesting way to shoot this? But, um, you know, you sort of absorb as a director, the DNA of the show. And so, you know, you make sure you're within the visual style, the tone, um, that it feels familiar because that is sort of the solid ground from which we can adventure onto the other things. I think a way in which the show is unique and really fun for a director is that you have whatever the leap is. And, you know, there's a little bit of freedom to what is that going to look and feel like. Um, so for this, you know, this one was particularly fun because it was such a different tone and visual style than previous leaps have been. Um, but I think that contrast is important, you know, in, in the previous episode, it, 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 well, it's always just a little bit different. It's like, is there going to be friction or contrast between, you know, HQ and the leap in the visual style is one going to feel more frenetic is when I be handheld, like, where is the crisis happening? Um, for this one, I felt like the two styles were meant to be tonally similar and intertwined. And, and you know, it's just the the color palette, the visual style that's quite different between present and leap. Oh, there's one thing I'd like to just add to this, which is that, uh, you know, I did work with Eliza Taylor for three seasons on The 100. And I have to say a huge testament to her performance in this episode is she played a really kind of iconic character on that show called Clark a.k.a. one hit of the, the commander of death. And I was so proud of the transformation she made into the role of Hannah for this, this series because they, they are night and day different characters. And I just thought she, she embodied our best possible version of Hannah for the season. She did an amazing job. She really did. Matt, Matt and I have already gone on at length about how much we loved her performance in the main show. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have uh, two, two big fans of what Eliza is bringing to the role of Hannah. And also, Absolutely. you know, it's nice to see Peter be able to really embody Tom in a, in a much more sub mm -hmm. substantive way in this mm -hmm. episode. So yeah, kudos on, on both, of, on both of those actors. Uh, we can't wait to be able to speak to them. Uh, maybe we'll save them for the end of the season so that we can actually, you know, talk to them about the, the season as a whole and they won't have to hedge anything. Thing. But um, you guys have been so generous with your time and so um, so substantive in your answers. I know we've covered a lot. Are there any aspects of uh, secret history that we haven't covered that you guys want to discuss that you just want to touch upon? 
Hmm. I'll say my favorite shot in the episode um, is the entry into Einstein's library. We had so much fun designing that space and that moment uh, to feel maximum Indiana Jones adventure. (laughs) Um, And I just, I thought that was, well, the crew on Quantum Leap is literally the nicest I've worked with and I've only worked with nice crews. So superlatives all around and watching people excel in this way on such a tight timeline with few resources and just at that speed saying, okay, I'd like to do this shot where they're going to step from this beautiful set into this sort of like magical moment that feels, you know, like Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones, almost Harry Potter-esque into this like incredible, like wondrous secret space that should feel you, you know, like fill you with awe, you know, just a small ask like that, watching everybody figure out how to do that. And then add to that, like, by the way, this wall I'm going to set on fire. So it should be made of metal. And uh, we're going to, you know, like break a lantern here. And then this is where we'll add VFX fire. So watching every department um, figure out how to rise to that ask was really wonderful. And um, I just feel so grateful to this amazing crew and cast and to the writers. It was such, such a big ambitious episode and um, we had a great time making it never compromised um, and got to make the episode of our dreams. It felt like a little movie. I know we're in wrap up, but um, just because you brought it up and it was in the back of my mind, uh, I really do want to ask about that that tracking shot um, moving into uh, Einstein's room. I love that moment as well. Oh, was that two different sets that were joined in post-production? No, because the feel it. of the sets looked yeah. so different. I thought that's that's got to be a, a tracking shot that's been cut as it passes through the wall. But That was it's, totally it's just... practical. Yeah, I shot listed that wow. shot really early. And so all of the set plans, um, you know, included that moment. So... It was built with a piece that would, you know, that we could remove for that shot. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was building a set is for a specific shot list is a dream. Highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the value of prep, right? If a director knows what they want, the art department can help build around that. And so that, that shot was on Pamela's mind. I, I feel like it, very early on, we talked about it. Uh, just a second, everything she just said, you know, the experience we had making it is that feeling we had is what you, I think, get when you watch the episode. There's just a lot of joy and love and, and passion and, and really hard work went into it because we all really cared. But also, it's one of the best experiences I've had writing and producing an episode of TV in, in my whole career. It just what, what we were able because a lot of TV is compromised because of just the way that things fall apart. You know, you lose actors, you lose this, you, you know. Um, so to have someone like Pamela at my side who was like, we're going to make it great. Don't worry. I'm not worried. We, we're going to pull this off. And to see everybody rally to that to that challenge was really exciting, really invigorating. It was great to drive to work every day listening to John Williams and feeling like we're going to try to pull this off. <laughs> and, uh, and and we did. And I, I'm really proud of the episode because we did deliver on on the, the spectacle and, and the look. And it's just a beautiful looking episode. But we didn't lose those moments and, and I, it really touches me every time I watch the episode, I'm very moved by the ending. So I'm, I'm just so glad I got to work with Pamela and everybody else in this because it takes a village and I had the best possible village to make it. I think that's a wonderful place for us to leave off. Drew, Pamela, thank you very much for joining us today on the quantum leap podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. 
another thing I'm kicking myself about, Matt. <laughs> I need to keep a list. Great interview, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah such a good interview. It's uh, so much fun talking to those guys. We're talking about so much bigger picture stuff. It's again, I never asked Drew about the physicality thing. We mentioned it before in his episode. First, it was the boxer and he sort of yeah. set that up. And now it's just Ben with a limp. It's like, damn it. I should have asked him about like, are you just doing this because it's fun for you? So, <laughs> <laughs> But I, I feel like we had a good substantive interview otherwise, you know. I, I think, it, yeah, it ran nearly an hour. How, how much more detail did you want to get into? We'll have Drew back on the show at some point, and uh, then we can we can maybe maybe start with a five minute catch up on the things that we missed. <laughs> and now on to your next. Oh, episode. you remember this, Drew? And yeah. how about you? You remember that part, right? How yeah. about this? So, yeah. yeah, get ready, Drew. I almost I I almost messaged messaged messengered him on Instagram earlier to ask that question about the physicality so we could talk about it on the show. But uh, I I said, you know what? Creep. Don't be a creepy stalker. Just save it till the next interview, Chris. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) It's a burning question to nobody but me. So I don't want to be that guy. I mean, I already am that guy. (laughs) Yeah, we are that that guys. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Drew. Thank you, Pamela. Amazing interview. And we can't wait to have you back on the show. Yeah. So, yeah, because we still need to talk to Pamela about Leap Die Repeat. We never even we got do. to ask her about that. We do. You know? So. Yeah, I hope we can do. Okay, hopes are all well and good, but let's lay those hopes aside for the time being, shall we? Because uh, we can console ourselves, Matt. You don't have to be so sad about it. Um, we have another terrific interview to take your mind off the fact that you didn't get to talk about Leap Die Repeat. Do you think you'll be okay? I think I think I'll manage, but this. <laughs> but I'm but I'm sad because this isn't an interview that I got to take part in. And uh, Cullen seems so nice. Uh, I I love this interview. I'm really looking forward to hearing it again. Yeah. So I personally am very happy that I got to take part in this interview because it was fantastic. And uh, I think you guys are really going to love what Colin has to say. Here is our interview with Colin Douglas. Hello, Leapers, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and today I am thrilled to bring you our interview with Colin Douglas. Colin, welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited about this. Well, leapers out there uh, probably recognize you after the episode Secret History. You played Dr. Carl Donovan, secret Nazi spoilers. <laughs> big spoiler. Right? Big, big spoiler. Big, big spoiler. So, um, Colin, uh, I've, I, I was looking at your background, and I'm just astounded at the career that you've had and so much that you've done. And I mean, you're a writer, you're a producer, you're a director, you're an actor. Can you just give us a brief overview of your background, how you got into acting, and then maybe we can work it up into um, getting the role on Quantum Leap? Sure, of course. Um, so I am, uh, I guess, the quintessential journeyman actor. I'm kind of one of those guys that stands behind you at the grocery store and you keep looking over your shoulder going, did we go to high school together? Did you teach my daughter in school? <laughs> it's always that kind of recognition, but people can't exactly place it. Um, and I've been very fortunate over the last 30 some odd years to work as an actor and as a writer and as a director um, and now as a producer as well. Um 
you know, I got into the business. Um, my family moved around a lot and it was very hard to make friends. And so my mom said, well, let's put him in children's community theater and uh, see if he might be able to thrive there because I wasn't exactly thriving on the sports field. And uh, but I found my people. Um, and I, I was bitten by the bug, so to speak. And so did all the plays all through grade school and high school, and then went off to New York to study and then to Florida to study, and then spent a lot of years doing bus and truck companies, uh, all over the United States. Um, my little, you know, uh, Wikipedia trivia, I guess, is the fact that I have been fortunate enough to perform either on a stage or on a sound stage in 49 of the 50 states. Uh, which, um, which one are you missing? <laughs> Alaska. Ah. <laughs> I, am, I am waiting for Alaska. I, <laughs> my dear friend, Jeff Perry um, of Steppenwolf Theater fame, He uh, last year he was working on the show uh, Alaska Daily up there in Alaska. And I was like, Okay, we've got to get me up on the show <laughs> just so I can check it off my bucket list. Um, and so anyway, I, I spent a lot of years doing theater and then started to transition into television and film. And um, yeah, like I said, I have been very fortunate over the years um, working, recurring on shows, uh, everything from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., to uh, I was very fortunate to be a part of David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return. And uh, I, I also worked on Jason Kadem's show for CBS called Pure Genius. Um, and then, of course, I was so fortunate uh, that um, the, the fates kind of smiled down on me and I got the audition to go in for Quantum Leap for this amazing role of Dr. Carl Donovan. Mm -hmm. And uh, you and I were speaking uh, before we started the podcast tonight. I have to say this podcast truly, I think, in some small way, helped me book the the role. Oh, um, do, you know, do tell. <laughs> well, it's a situation that, you know, I'd like to think that every actor out there is doing their homework. And I try to familiarize myself with most of the shows that I might be going in for, that I might be reading. And so I, of course, was a fan of the original incarnation of Quantum Leap. And I had watched some of the episodes of the current, you know, reboot of the show and really enjoyed it and just tried to to find the time and discover it again. And when the audition came in, I felt like, okay, I need to do a deep dive as quickly as I can. And so, of course, I ran over to IMDB just to kind of get a lay of the land, maybe look at the, the colors in the wardrobe so I knew what I would want to be able to suggest with, you know, when I went for my audition but I just felt the sense that I wanted to get an idea of the tone of the show and of the people. And so I, I went to YouTube literally and typed in Quantum Leap. And the first thing that popped up was the podcast. And so I spent that evening watching you and Matt and some of the other folks talking about the show. I felt like I knew Ray when I went on to set because I had already seen him on the podcast kind of a thing. <laughs> so it really was, it, it served me so well as an actor to kind of fill in the blanks because often you, you just get your sides or you, you know, get a portion of the script and you don't know the lay of the land, but the podcast, it really, it filled in all those blanks for me. 
Well, thank you. That's very humbling because I know we we work hard on the show and we're such super fans that for us, the reward is just, you know, we get to talk about Quantum Leap every week. And we were talking about the Legacy series for years and then we were blessed with the Revival series. So it's amazing for us as podcasters to be sort of on the vanguard of a property that was moribund for quite a while. And now it's going as strong as ever. And we're getting to actually talk to actors who were just on set, you know, a couple of months ago instead of 30 years ago. I mean, you being a prime example. So um, sure. yeah, it's, it's just, it, it's an amazing journey that we've been on. And I'm just so happy that the work that we put in uh, was of value to you because I can't imagine you just, man, we ramble on for hours, dude. <laughs> I mean, good. Uh, there's, I, I'm hoping that you went four times speed at least, at least through no, some of my, no, no. my screeds. <laughs> no, it, it was, it was really informative uh, in the way in which you guys talked about the show because you were coming at it from a different point of view. You were coming at it from the viewer's point of view. You know, I could have read all of the stats. I could have done all that, but the way in which you guys talked about it, you really lent lent itself to talking about the tone, which I think what they have done with the series is just amazing because it really bridges so many different gaps. Yes, it's about the time travel and the leaping, but there's also this love story, which is amazing, that kind of keeps percolating. And then you have the backdrop of some of these really profound issues that they address in these episodes. And so it kind of, again, it just sort of checks off so many boxes, but I was able to learn about it and kind of dig deeper from what you all were, were saying about the show. Well, again, thank you so much. I mean, uh, gratitude for, um, for, for giving us the chance and for helping. I'm glad that we helped inform at least the way you might approach it as an actor. So, I mean, that all being said, can you describe the process of number one, how um, you auditioned for the role, and then you know once you got it, what what happened from there? So uh, the audition came in, and uh, I, I quickly read over the sides, um, which again is just sort of a portion of the script, just with that character's involvement. And it was an earlier draft uh, that drew drew Linda the amazing. He, he he wrote just an incredible episode. And I could tell just from what I was reading that this was something kind of special. Um, it, it just had so many twists and turns within such a condensed kind of time period. Um, and so I, I read it over a couple of times and listened to you guys. Um, I went back and was very fortunate um, because the show was on NBC. I was able to quickly watch some previous episodes again to kind of get up to speed with everything. Um, and then I just put myself down on tape um, and crossed my fingers and hoped for the best. Um, and in fact, I, I'm in the, the room that I literally auditioned in, um, you know, and, it, and it's weird because you know, we have moved with COVID um, actors kind of moved into a situation where we were no longer going in and reading with the casting directors and meeting the directors and the producers. We're putting ourselves on tape and just hoping that we're in the zone, hoping that we're getting close to what they need, because that's the one component that you miss when you're self-taping is the casting director to kind of 
pull you aside and whisper in your ear and say, you know what, they've seen so many people today do it like this, try it like that. And so I just had to go with my gut instinct. And I tried. And I think it was a pretty quick turnaround, quite honestly. I think it was maybe a day. Um, and then my agents called and said, you know, they're they're interested. Um, and then that kind of moved to they've put a pin in you, which is sort of mean they really, really like you, <laughs> but they don't want to commit just yet. They don't want to pick out China patterns just yet. Um <laughs> You know, and partly that I think comes from the fact that when they're shooting episodes, they don't want to book somebody if all of a sudden things need to get changed or they're having to shift things around. And so um, they kept a pin in me for a day or two. And then I got the official notice that uh, I had booked the role, um, which, which was very exciting. And I've, I've got to share, it was funny. Um, so I, again, it was sort of an affirmation that, okay, I guess I got it right. I guess my instincts were right. I guess what Matt and Friss were saying on the podcast was right. So, okay, all right, let's go in and let's try it. And so they called me in uh, over at Universal Studios to do a fitting for the wardrobe. And this was about a week before I was going to start filming, actually, um, to give the tailors enough time to adjust the the uh, the wardrobe and everything. And, and that in and of itself was exciting because the – the, the costume designer had pulled me suits that were actually from the period. This wasn't something that they had just picked off the rack. This was truly something someone had worn this suit back in the 50s. And, and it was such a lovely thing to kind of put onto my body and just sort of absorb the echoes of it. Um, and so we went through the fitting. We tried lots of different looks for the doctor. And... Um, you know, glasses as well that I wear in the episode. And uh, so I was just finished and I was getting dressed, getting ready to just go back out in my car and wait for them to call and tell me what time my call time was in a couple of days. And um, one of the assistant wardrobe people came into the room and she had kind of a long face on and she said, the producers and director needs to see you. And I went, oh, okay. All right. That, so as and an so actor I, with your experience, is that like a red flag? Does your heart just stop or go into your throat? It, it kind of did stop just a little bit. It was kind of like, okay, you know, I think there's always that imposter syndrome as an actor in that, you know, you, you, you're just... I could be in the job, in the middle of a job, opposite, you know, Kerry Washington in a scene from Scandal or something, still waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and go, you know what? We met the other guy, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, please, you're welcome to stop off at craft services on your way out. But, you know, thank you so much. We won't need your services. So I, I, I made the walk over in the offices there down this very long hallway that felt a lot longer than it probably is because I honestly did not know what I was going to be expecting. You know, and in and, and the walk, I'm walking and thinking, okay, what is it they're going to tell me? You know, they didn't like this, but I got by on the hair of my chinning chin chin or, you know, or maybe it was an accent that they were wanting to see if I could, you know, be able to inhabit or whatever. And I turned the corner into the office and there sat Drew, and the episode's director, 
director, uh, Pamela Romanowski, who I know you guys are speaking to as well. And that both of them stood up, came across the room and gave me huge bear hugs, just unsolicited and said, thank you. You were our guy. We saw you and within seconds, we knew you were our Dr. Donovan. And I was like, oh, thank you. And I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall kind of a thing. And they're like, that's it. We just wanted to tell you we can't wait to play. And I was like, I can't wait to play. Thank you. And so, I, you know, I, I kind of like the Grinch, my heart grew 10,000. <laughs> I walked out of there just going, wow, that was really kind of special that they're in the middle of prepping this episode and they wanted to take the time to say, hey, Cullen, you know, boy, we loved what you did. We can't wait for you to come and play with us. And that's what we did. From the moment I got on set, that whole week was just, I, I just got invited into the sandbox and we just played. That's terrific. Now, I know that um, you had a little bit more to do than most guest stars because there was a very physical part of your role. I want to get to that part. I know you know what I'm talking about. But was it a surprise to you that uh, Dr. Colin turned out to be the bad guy? Did you know going in that you were going to be the, the Nazi in disguise? The sides that I was originally get given for the audition did have the turn. Okay, cool. Um, and, and so I knew what was coming. Um, and the thing that was really kind of exciting about it was in that initial meeting with Drew and Pamela, they both said, you, you got it. You didn't telegraph. And I think that was the thing about the role is you really need to believe that he is just who he says he is. Mm. Because if you're winking at the audience too soon, they're sitting there waiting for Ben to catch up, so to speak. Right. Like, we already know it. Why don't you know it kind of a thing? And so it was kind of a it was it was a dance that we sort of did to make sure that, uh, you know, I stayed as kind of small and I guess maybe meek as possible hmm. um, within the context of what my job there at Princeton was so that I could be ready for that turn that hopefully no one, including Ben, you know, and Hannah saw coming. Yeah, it was a really neat twist in the episode. And um, the way that they played it out was so much fun because you got to do like an old fashioned swashbuckling sword fight, which was maybe the highlight of the episode. And I really want to know about that because I know, I mean, it looked like real swords on the wall, at least. And then you guys are dancing around and a lot of physicality. You're, you're chopping Raymond's cane in half. And I, I want to know, how does how does something like that come together? I have to imagine that there's a mix of um, you guys doing it and stunt people doing it. And can you describe the blocking and, and how that scene came together? When I saw that I was going to get to do a sword fight on screen, I, I it was the little kid in me was just <laughs> jumping up and down. Hell, the, the grown ass man was jumping up and down. I was so excited. I mean, that's 
that's why we do these things. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've jumped off furniture as a kid, pretending to be the swashbuckling bad guy. And, you know, here I was, it was kind of, it was my Indiana Jones moment, so to speak. Um, it was really, really incredible. And so we, we knew that was coming and Pamela did such a, an amazing job in the sense that we shot that scene for an entire day. That was our day. Um, and they actually, after we wrapped the sword fight, they still had more things to shoot later on in the evening. But we were on that set shooting that from every angle possible hmm. um, with both Ray and I using the swords and then they were able to work with us um and we we choreographed the whole thing as well as then having our stunt doubles step in and i was just so incredibly encouraged by the fact that um chad bennett uh, a wonderful stuntman came in to double me and we don't look that much different from one another it was a perfect match so to speak but he knew how to handle a sword and make me really look good <laughs> so you know we went through a whole sequence of that sword fight where the camera would be on me and i was actually dueling with ray's stunt double and then there were times in which ray was on screen and he was he was sword fighting with Chad. So as if, if Ray were to perhaps slip, he would hurt Chad and not me, which was, I guess, a, an economical thing to do to make sure you protect everybody kind of a thing. But it was really great. And, and uh, we, everybody just, it, it felt so organic because we just went through everything very melodically and, and very, you know, step by step like you do to make sure everyone is safe. Um, they were real swords um, that we were fighting with. Um, it was a real cane. Um, it may have had just a little bit of an indentation, but, you know, I truly had to hit it on its correct mark to be able to split it in two. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole challenge with the the gunplay um, that, you know, Ray and I. Yeah. Ray and I became very intimate very quickly, so to speak. I bet, <laughs> I bet. That, that was my next, my next question because uh, after yeah. the sword fight, we had we had the gun. Oh no, it was the gun part was before the sword fight, and then once I think you lost the gun, right? The sword, then we right. went to the sword. Right. So I mean, my my question is: with all of these, you know, weapons on set, did you have to go through any kind of um, safety training beforehand? We did. Did you do it the day of? I'm, I'm just curious to know the dynamic of that because I have to imagine everybody's so hyper focused on safety, incredibly hyper focused and justifiably so. Um, and that was the thing that made me feel so comfortable. Is you know when we were working with the gun. The props master, the gunnery, everyone was, you know, the armorer on the set was able to show us, okay, this is not a loaded gun. There are no blanks in here. There is nothing. The chamber is completely, you know, blocked. There is no way for anything. And so it had the weight, you know, and it was because it was a real gun, they were able to get the close up. But then in any of the wide shots, I was, I was holding on to a rubber gun, you know, that, yeah. It would would hurt if you threw it at somebody, but that was about it, you know. Um, and then same with the swords. You know, we worked first with dowels, um, you know, just wooden dowels. And so, 
throughout the day when they were setting up various other shots within our scene, um, you know, when they were angling on, you know, certain devices or certain parts of my desk and stuff like that, Ray and I would be off on, on another part of the soundstage just going through the motions of the fight so that we knew sort of muscle memory where you know, each of us were going to be because we both recognize and, and Ray's been doing it on a regular basis now with some of the stuff that he has to do on the show. But we knew that inherently there was going to be an, an adrenaline. You know, once Pamela called action, you can't help but just give it a little extra juice. So we needed to make sure that when we ramped up the speed and we're going at full speed, that we were just as safe as if when we had started with basically chopsticks, just sort of, you know, tapping back and forth. Gotcha. Well, I mean, it came across very well, whatever you guys did, it, it, it was all there on camera. And what I loved about that scene was that it turned from sort of like, almost like uh, a national treasure solved the mystery episode and pivoted into almost like an action pulp episode uh, with the reveal of the Nazi. Now, when you had to approach that reveal, I mean, you did have the speech about being a good German or being a good citizen, but you never, you know, gave up the, the love of the homeland, that kind of thing. Were you tempted to sneak in a German accent on that and like really go over the top? How did they direct you on that? And did it go against, did you have to go against some instincts that you had? Because it just seemed like you could really chew on this, you know? <laughs> sure. And I think that that was to, again, Pamela's credit is that she, she said I was able to gnaw on the scenery, but I couldn't chew it, uh, so to speak, you know, and I think that it was, it was a collective decision that even before I walked in, you know, when I auditioned, I did not do it with an accent. Um, you know, I, I assumed that Dr. Donovan by this point would have, you know, really tried to just sort of, you know, be innocuous, so to speak, mm -hmm. and not stick out. And so I tried to kind of bury it. There are a couple lines where the German in me actually came out just, you know, listening to my grandfather and things like that. So it wasn't necessarily purposeful, um, but it, it may have snuck out here and there. But there were a couple of things in that that we wanted to just, and again, this was Pamela and Drew's call, to kind of just thread the needle as best we could. And again, make him as accessible and as much of a big misdirect at the beginning, because I think if my character had come in with a thick German accent, it may have been a tell for the audience. Mm. And that was the same thing that, um, you know, I, uh, in the episode, there's a situation where, um, you see me in my Nazi, yes. you know, regalia. And what they had done is they'd taken a picture of me and superimposed my face onto a real SS officer. Um, and a lot of things, and, and Drew and I discussed this as, and Pamela as well, a lot of those officers back in that day, um, would have had that scar right. on their face, which is sort of a badge of honor. Um, and so they, there was a couple of days where they were deciding before I started to work of whether or not they were going to put the scar on me. But ultimately, again, they went in the favor of, you know what? The scar and a German accent is going to tip the audience off. So let's just keep Donovan as sort of middle America as we can to hopefully have it be that much more impactful 
when the character does reveal his Nazi roots. I think it was a good play because you're right. It, it could have so easily, I guess, devolved into more of like a cliche. I, I think of, you know, some of the characters in Raiders of the Lost Ark where, you know, just chuckling under your breath, Dr. Jones, you know. So I'm glad you guys played it the way you did. When you realized the character that you were going to play was a former Nazi, did you do any kind of background research into some of the people that were part of Operation Paperclip? Or was it Project Paperclip? I, I want to say Project because it's Project Quantum Leap, but I believe it was Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip. Yeah. Yes, I, I did. Um, you know, uh, I didn't, once I had booked the role, then I kind of rolled up my sleeves um, past the audition, past the kind of stuff that I had done beforehand. And I really, I wanted to find out more about that Operation Paperclip and how someone like my character could have just you know, gone unnoticed, so to speak. And it was fascinating. It really was disturbing and fascinating, quite honestly. The fact that some of these officers, high-ranking officers in the Nazi regime, were literally being plucked out of prison and being put onto planes and sent to places like Princeton and given new identities and said, okay, here you go. You're going to start, you know, developing or working with the space program or, you know, building the infrastructure of our roads. Um, and so I found two individuals that came from that period, and I was able to go back and look at their previous record. And it was quite honestly, really, really chilling um, of what they had done previously before being come a part of this Operation Paperclip. Um, and so you know, I had I had a lot, a lot of backstory, you know, which was such an incredible gift because often you're given a character and, you know, the actor is sort of left to their own devices to make up, you know, anything that's not necessarily on the page. I had volumes. I had, you know, page upon page of things that I was able to learn about my character or about individuals that were very reminiscent of who I was playing. Yeah, that's a unique situation, I have to think, for for most actors, like you said. And um, I, I, again, it just came through in subtle ways in the performance, especially after the turn. Um, just like I would have bought that you were a college professor in the 50s, maybe milk toasts and uh, maybe a bit misogynistic because you weren't going to publish any of Hannah's findings. But, um, you know, when you made the turn to the Nazi, it was completely believable. So I don't know if that's a compliment, but. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I, again, it was in the writing. I, I, I've got to say it was in the writing with what Drew had crafted. It was such a strong script. And then to give credit where credit is due with Pamela, because we tried a lot of different things. I mean, again, folks have seen the episode at this point. I, you know, I've got that exit line, you know, right when I'm sort of holding the him there, I've disarmed him, um, you know, and it's when he's just before he knocks me out, we, we played that a couple of different ways. Um, and just, we, we tried so many different, ways to kind of have that be sort of a signature and um Pamela found it she could hear it um and she she and and was such a treat is again because it was such a supportive environment on that set that she came up and kind of just whispered in my ear and kind of gave me a little thing to think about and tweak and I did it and then I kind of heard that's it 
that's a wrap. And so I, I knew that we would have kept going, quite honestly, until I had gotten it right. And uh, thankfully, with with Pamela's help, we were able to kind of knock it out of the park, hopefully. Well, that's awesome. And you just alluded to being on set. I mean, it just in more general terms, can you talk about what it was like to be on the set of The New Quantum? Because I know that... Um, Second only to Scott Bakula, and probably second to no one, we hear so many good things about Raymond Lee and in the entire cast uh, in general, but um, just what a giving and generous uh, star Raymond is and how he embraces the guest stars that come on. So can you talk about working with Ray a little bit? I would love to talk about Ray. What an incredible human. Wow. So unself-possessed, just so grounded, so down-to-earth, such an actor's actor, just going out of his way. I mean, by the end of our first day, I, he knew my family's history, you know, and was talking about, oh, and then your wife, Rachel, said this, right? And I was like, how is this possible? You know, it was really amazing. But again, it starts from the top. Uh, you know, I... I, I've talked about before with with a, a company of actors that I work with on a regular basis. We always can kind of tell when we're going to a new set to be the the guest of the week. You know, you're you're going into somebody's home. You know, you kind of wipe your feet at the door and hope that they you know give you a seat at the table. And uh, but it's always a trickle down in the sense that if I get to where the trailers are parked and. I'm greeted by a second second or a PA who's very short with me and says, you know, well, you need to get in there, get your wardrobe on, get over to hair and makeup kind of a thing. I know that there's probably tension coming from the soundstage that's, you know, happening and just one person's yelling at the next person, the next person. There was none of that on the Quantum Leap set. Again, I got greeted with open arms with from Pamela and Drew. And that was my big sign that, oh, this is going to be a great week. And it, and it manifested it in every way. You know, when I was working with the costume designer, I, that's what I mean. It wasn't as if I just walked in there and they had wardrobe for me. They wanted to discuss it. They wanted to say, well, what do you see, Dr. You know Donovan wearing, so it was a real collaborative experience. And then getting onto set, everyone from from again the PAs to the grips and and the the camera. I was very fortunate that uh, a lot of the camera crew worked on a television series that I had worked on a couple of years ago, um, the Jason Kadem series, Pure Genius. So in that way, it was kind of like an old home week, but. There were so many other people that I was meeting for the first time. And by the end of my, you know, eight days on, on set, I, I was I had made family with these people. And I think that there's something about Ray that is just so disarming. Um, it, it just kind of transcends. It kind of just, you know, he's number one on the call sheet. And yet you would never know it because he's the first guy to help, you know, move things if things need moved, even though that's not in his contract. You know, he just is such an incredible team player that you just everyone is giving 150 percent. It it truly is such a, a wonderful experience. And I think that the nature of the show, by the fact that 
depending upon the episode, the guest cast is really doing some of the heavy lifting that it's a situation where we're embraced, you know, and and it's such a wonderful feeling. I, I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to work on Steven Spielberg's reboot of Amazing Stories. And it was, in essence, an anthology series. Right. So all of us that were working on that particular show, we were all the guest stars because there was no one from the previous episode. And it felt the same way on the Quantum Leap set is that, okay, you're part of the family now, whether you like it or not. And it was such a great thing because, you know, like I said, Chris, you know, I've been in this business for over 30 years, and there have been times where I've walked onto set and I cannot wait for it to be over. And I, I have spent time since wrapping Quantum Leap trying to figure out how could Dr. Donovan maybe leap? again how could we see him again you know i mean if they're doing it with hannah maybe he ends up in prison with me or something because i just wanted more yeah. I, I literally was holding on to the furniture when they wrapped me because i didn't want to leave it was it was a hard thing it was a beautiful week well speaking of of hannah you have um one of the most unique distinctions in the second season of the new series you got to work with Peter Godot and with uh, Eliza Taylor, uh, they play Tom and Hannah. So can you talk a little bit about uh, working with them? Because you were all in the room together, and I know you're not allowed to look at Peter. So did that, did that like pose any challenges? Or tell me about that dynamic. Well, it, was, it was cool. Both of them, right off the bat, were just, again, so incredibly gracious. And, you know, we, we, we just had great conversations. I mean, it almost got to the point where we were so in depth with whatever we were talking about and laughing about when we were sitting sort of off to the corner that when they would call us to set, it'd be like, oh, we got to go work because we were having <laughs> such good time just all chatting. Um, no, but Peter was wonderful. And and it was kind of fun for me because I, the 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 filmmaker in me wanted to see how they were able to do this. You know, and it was one of those situations where, you know, we shot everything and then we would literally just have to freeze right. as if, you know, my hands here and they would say, hold. And then Peter would walk on to set and then they would roll things again with him standing there and then they would yell freeze again and then he would step away. So that would that was really kind of exciting because I knew that that movie magic was happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it was wonderful working with Eliza. Um she and I first met actually uh, in the scene in which uh, my character is being arrested and, and you know, being taken away. And um, it was so, it was so charming. It was so great because we shot that, like, say, let's that was on a Friday. And it was so great because then when we were working together the following Monday, it was like, oh, wow, seeing an old friend again. They were both just so ready to play. And um, we all felt just so incredibly fortunate. Um, to be to be doing this because it just felt special. It felt like we were working on a, something really special beyond just the show itself. The episode just felt elevated for some reason. 
Well, you did have the uh, the good fortune of being in a terrific episode. And uh, I was telling Matt on the podcast that I know part of our job here on, on the QLP is to maybe point out some flaws and to talk seriously about both strengths and weaknesses. But we both feel like this season just gets better and better and better. And um, I feel like this episode was real, a real high point for the season. So it must have been a, just a thrill to be able to be part of it. And um, I, I, you know, I, we're talking a lot about quantum, but I mean, your resume is just staggering. And I don't know if you want to go into some of the other stuff you've done, or maybe some of the stuff you're working on currently. Like, where can where can uh, fans of Quantum Leap see you see you now or see you next? I'll probably be heading to the grocery store after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I, I, with the strike kind of coming out of both the writers and actors strike, there's not a whole lot of kind of can. I have two films um, that are sort of gestating right now that I think are going to be coming out at the beginning of this next year. Uh, I work in a film called the bunker opposite uh, Tobin bell. And, um, that's really exciting. Um, and uh, on the other side of it, I, I'm, I'm currently recurring on a show on Amazon Freebie called Casa Grande. Um, it's sort of an upstairs, downstairs, a little bit of Yellowstone, a little bit of the have and have nots. Um, it's, it's kind of a wonder. I get to be a cowboy, um, which is kind of cool. You know, as, as a journeyman actor, that's the thing that's kind of exciting to be able to you know, play a Nazi one week and then a cowboy rancher the next is is always fun. Um, during lockdown, um, because I wasn't able to step onto a set and act, I leaned heavily into my writing and directing um, to kind of honestly just feed my artistic soul. Um, and I actually ended up writing and directing a feature length documentary called Billy Flanagan, The Happiest Man on Earth, um, which is now streaming on Amazon and Tubi and Apple. Um, and it's it's about a gentleman who is the longest contracted performer in Walt Disney World history. Um, he started performing in 1982 at Walt Disney World. And to this day, I actually spoke to him earlier today, he is still performing 42 some odd years later. Um, still doing the high kicks. Um, he's sort of the quintessential Mr. Disney. Um, during lockdown, when Disney was forced to let go of 750 equity performers, um, Billy, for the first time in his life, quite frankly, was out of a job hmm. um, and didn't know what to do with himself. And he's quite an avid cyclist. And so he started cycling around Orlando, Florida, delivering little singing and dancing telegrams, socially distant kind of things to all of his friends that were also displaced and out of work. And then other parts, uh, other folks in other parts of the country started to pick up on this and said, well, when am I going to get my little singing and dancing flanagram? And so Billy started (laughs) crisscrossing the United States on his bike, delivering these little bundles of joy to people. And I saw the story on Good Morning America or, or one of those places, uh, may have been the Today Show, and I I reached out to an executive producer friend of mine and said, I think there's a little short film about this you know, feel-good situation. We contacted Billy, we spoke to him, and after talking to Billy, we realized we had a feature film. Um, so that was that was really nice. And then 
otherwise, artistically, um, before the writer's strike and the actor's strike, I was very fortunate that I picked up a shopping agreement as a writer uh, for to develop a novel um, by uh, amazing writer Ali Larkin um, and develop it into a television series. Um, and so I've been developing and producing it sort of behind the scenes uh, with my producing partner, Monica Lacey. And now that the strikes are over, so to speak, we can start to take that out. Um, and I also have a television movie um, that I'm looking that I'm going to be writing and directing on as well. Um, so trying to keep all of the things happening at the same time, you know, I'm on quantum leap. How cool <laughs> how is you, that? How do you do it all? And you're not even mentioning the fact that you're an acclaimed playwright and um, you wrote a play that was somewhat autobiographical that was won some major awards and, you know, got, got lauded up, up and down. Do you, do you care to talk about, about that? Sure. Of course. You know, again, it, it came out of, you know, the the writing and the directing of the of the Billy Flanagan project came out of the fact that I needed to get that out of my system, so to speak, um, because, you know, we just we were watching paint dry during those early days of lockdown and not knowing if the industry was going to come back, you know, how long we would be washing our groceries for that kind of a thing. And so it was a real release for me. Um Similarly, um, 27 years ago, uh, my oldest son was born um, and he happened to be born with Down syndrome. Um, and it was not something that, quite honestly, my wife and I were expecting. It was a typical pregnancy. And um, when he was born, it was sort of a it was a definite shock to the system. Um, but in that first year of life with Gabriel, I learned to kind of get out of my own way um, and get rid of any of the preconceived notions I might have had about someone with a cognitive disability mm. and really let him teach me how to be the father that I needed to be. Um, and so the play that I ended up writing um, called Afraid to Look Down um, is really my recollection of that first year of uh, life. It's a one-man show about how I navigated things um, from Gabriel's birth to all the way to when we celebrated his first birthday, you know, and, and that play, it was such a wonderful gift that kind of kept on giving because I think I did it for the right reasons, or I'd like to think I did it for the right reasons. I selfishly did it in the sense that I wrote it just because I needed to get all of these feelings out. Um, the, the confusing feelings that I was having about being a father about expectations. Um, and then I started to travel with it across the country in various little places and theaters um, in different parts of the, the country. And then I was here in Los Angeles and I was doing it at the uh, former HBO workspace um, in Hollywood. And um, I, I, I did it. And um gentleman um, who everyone I'm sure knows, John C. McGinley, um, sure. actor from Platoon, as well as Scrubs, um, he came to see the show one night, and he too is a father uh, of a son with Down syndrome. And um, John came backstage after the show and said, "Wow, Cullen, you really you knocked it out of the park, and you you said a lot of the things that I'm thinking and have thought over the years." And uh, he said, um, "Are you familiar with the show Scrubs?" And this was at the height of Scrubs. Right. And I said, 
Well, of course I know Scrubs. Yes, it's it's a it's a favorite. You know, it's it's kind of must see TV for us at, around the house. We we love Scrubs. And he said, uh, "Would you like to be on the show?" I said, "I would. Of course, I'd like to be on the show." Chris, less than a week later, I was guesting on the show. Wow. Um, and so, and that and that role turned into a recurring role um, uh, on Scrubs. And so. You know, you never know where things are going to come from um, in this business. And the fact that at the very, very least, you know, with the Quantum Leap episode, not only was I able to play and, and do what I love to do, I have walked out of there with friends, true friends in Ray and in Pamela and in Drew. And I look forward to the opportunity where we all get to to play again, because, mm. you know, that's, that's for me at the end of the day, that's what I want to do. I just want to keep playing with, with people that I enjoy working with. Well, I'm mean, keeping it, uh, since we're circling back to quantum leap, are there any other, um, aspects of the episode that, um, we haven't discussed that you think we should highlight? You know, I my favorite parts are my parts, so that's sort of a gift. <laughs> but the episode, just in general, is just such a strong episode that um, you know it, it's definitely one that I think people are going to be hopefully referring to and, and talking about for for quite some time. Um, you know, I, I honestly think we covered. I will tell you this one thing that was it was again sort of an actor's moment. It, I had that same feeling when I was sharing with you earlier how. When the wardrobe department put me in period clothes, I was immediately kind of being able to transport myself. I felt like I was leaping. Um, when they put my character into the back of the 1950s police cruiser, I was sitting there in the back of this 1950s car and my POV out of the back seat all I could see were buildings that were doubling as Princeton. And then all of these background actors walking in front of me, all dressed in period clothes. And so it was as if I was just transported because there was nothing aneuristic within my, my point of view. I didn't see the camera from where I was sitting. I literally was just enjoying, wow, this is what it would be like back in 1955. <laughs> it was such a really kind of experience experience and the last time i had experienced that was when i was on the set of deadwood years ago um where i, I was playing a, a, a cowboy and again it was another situation where the camera could not be seen and all i saw was horses and you know people in petticoats and you know all of that and but that that quantum leap experience sitting back in that back of that car and just seeing 1955 is going to stay with me for a lot of years i know that's amazing. That's so much fun. Probably something that you can only get on a show like Quantum Leap or Deadwood, just that immersive experience. So. The one thing that I just think is extraordinary about Quantum Leap, and I don't, obviously your listeners get it, but I don't think the general public necessarily gets it. People who are not sort of, you know, huge fans of the show or have yet to discover it. These guys are making a pilot every week. You know, I mean, for someone like yourself who's also been in the business, you have to understand that that is incredible. That, all, except for a sort of home base in present day, whenever Ben is leaping, 
it's a completely new set, completely new characters, completely new wardrobes. And it's in essence like every week they are shooting a television pilot and then going, okay, now let's do another one because there's no starting over. They start from scratch every week. And it's just remarkable to me that they're able to do that so efficiently and have fun doing it. It, it really is. It, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Yeah, I think it speaks to the talent of the producers and and the crew and the cast just to be able to pick up and just pivot every week. It must be, you know, if if you're a producer, it, it must be um wow, so so much worry probably involved, but it just seems like they they pull it off with a plum every time. So every time. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been so generous with your time. Are there any parting words that you'd like to give to uh, the leapers out there who are listening? Just keep watching because the, the rest of this season, although things that were unfortunately truncated because of the, the writers and actors strike, we're in for some really great twists and turns. And uh, I just feel so incredibly honored to have been a part of this second season in such a big way. And I, I really feel like you know, the legacy show for me is always going to be there, but this is a whole new chapter. And I really encourage people to discover it. Go back, watch the first season, really just, just watch this journey. You know, we're all leapers and, and we get to watch it through Ben's eyes. Wonderful sentiment. And thank you, Colin, so much for appearing with us on the Quantum Leap podcast. Thank you. What did I tell you, Matt? Yeah, right. A, a delight, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I know I say that after every interview, but I mean it this time. <laughs> I know. What a gent. Yeah, so much fun to speak to. So much fun to speak to. And uh, his exuberance really comes through. He loved being on Quantum Leap. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he, I mean, he loved being on the podcast as well, which is always nice to hear. But even <laughs> even past that, um, his, his story about being cast and, and thinking he hadn't been cast. And yeah, uh, it was just it was joyful. It was a, a joyful interview. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much, Cullen, for the time you took to speak with us here on the Quantum Leap podcast. And, you know, maybe your dream will come true and we can get the Nazi character back somehow and yes. we can reprise the role. Who knows? <laughs> and next time I'm the one that gets to interview him. OK. All right. All right. It's a deal. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so this is the part where I usually tell you about the new patrons, but we don't have any new patrons, but we do have feedback. <gasps> so some feedback. OK, let's let's jump into some feedback. All right. So uh, we got an email from a listener named Joel Herndor, and I guess I'll take this one. <laughs> Hello, Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm very much enjoying season two. Season one felt a little rough, but to borrow a term from another fandom, the series seems to be growing the beard. Hmm, I wonder what he's <laughs> talking about. I like the different holograms as it allows other members of the team to provide their expertise. There's one concept for an episode I would love to see, but don't believe they will ever do. Have Ben cross over with Leaper Addison from the original timeline oh. and possibly have to keep the secret that either her timeline has been erased or Ooh. is a parallel timeline to his and have him interact with Hologram Ben. Love hearing your thoughts on the show. I wish Allison would come back for season two. Happy leaping, Joel. I love that idea. Right? We were just talking about Quantum Leap getting too sci-fi-y. Yeah, yeah, too right. big. Yes, but, I don't love that but, idea. No. no, I love it. But I do, yeah. <laughs> Bring it I on. Love it. 
But I, yeah, I think Joel's right when he says, I, I don't believe they'll ever do it for that very reason. But uh, what a cool idea. See, these are the kinds of ideas that make me yearn for Quantum Leap 2.0 Season 5. Because <laughs> that's really where all these stories belong. <laughs> the alternate timeline story, the Leaper Addison story. Novels, comics, tie-in fiction. That's, that's another good place for it. Joel, the fanfic writes itself here. so We look forward to reading it. Get busy, Joel. I want to read that story. Make it happen. So thank you, Joel. Joel Herndor for that feedback. And would you care to read uh, the next bit of feedback from our patron, Jeff Kiska? I certainly would. Although, Chris, I think this one is uh, much more. If I read it, it seems self-serving. I know, know, I know. So Jeff says, thanks to Chris, when I saw the boombox behind the counter in the shoe store, I just had to find out if it was anachronistic. Turns out it's an Emerson CTR 949. Yeah, I I knew that immediately, of course. Uh, It's an Emerson (laughs) CTR 949 made in 1985, so just fine for 1992. This is going to become an obsession, isn't it? Google gobble, one of us, one of us, Google gobble. A loving cup, Jeff. (laughs) I I love knowing about anachronistic props, and I I found it exciting when when Chris points out whether something is or isn't. But I don't understand how, unless you've been following this kind of stuff and researching it for years, how do you see a prop and say, yep, yep, I I know the kind of boombox that is. And then obviously when you know it's easy enough to Google to find out when it was made. But how? How do you go about that? Oh, well, I got to tell you. So just to give everybody context, because we didn't really set this one up very well. Um, Jeff was talking about a boombox that he saw in the One Night in Koreatown episode, which I guess was on the heels of a radio setting I did for the Closure Encounters episode, the first one that featured mm-hmm. Hannah. So um, – I used to do radio sightings uh, for any new listeners uh, for the old show where I would see radios on screen and research them and figure out if they actually belonged in the time that Sam had leapt into. And sometimes they were anachronistic. There were tons of anachronistic ones in the pilot episode. But it was my fetish. It was just my weird thing. And Albie just happened to say, yeah, sure, you can be on the show talking about this nonsense. I love it. (laughs) So I can tell you how it works, Matt. I collect radios, so I was always looking at pictures of radios and stuff anyway, and in my little guide. So it just turned out to be like a fun little find and seek for me. Uh, It does get a little bit tricky at times. And boom boxes, forget about it. They all look the same to me. So yeah. for all I know, Jeff is making this up just to take the piss out of me. But I still love it. <laughs> I'm going to Google the Emerson CTR949 and see if it exists. Thanks, Jeff. I'm sure it does, but... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so it's just one of the fun things that I have. And there were one, possibly two radios in this episode. There was a phonograph on the Nazis' sideboard that could have also been a radio. I have mm-hmm. to look that up. And um, there was also a radio in Lawrence's apartment screen right right next to the door when Hannah was walking in. So I'm going to look up all those. I think one of them might be an Emerson. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, it's just, you know, fun with Quantum Leap. And you mm-hmm. like to research every other thing besides radios. I have to have something of mine, Matt, yeah. because uh, I love it. You're writing all these books. <laughs> I just don't. I, I don't know where to start, so I'm I'm pleased to know an expert. Well, I know that the timeline and appendices volume of Beyond the Mirror Image is in the works now. Maybe we can yeah. put a whole radio setting subhead somewhere. I don't know, just a suggestion. But hey, Matt, I hear you got a third book coming. <laughs> I have. I have got a third book coming. Yes. 
the appendices, which is all the fun stuff. I've started to write it already, and it's based on a chunk of the original 2016 Beyond the Mirror image, but massively expanded and with loads of other cool stuff in it. And uh, yeah, I've, I've started writing it, and the Kickstarter is out, and uh, the Kickstarter smashed its targets within an hour which is a record for me. Nice. So I was I was very pleased about that. There's a lot of a lot of interest in it, but um yeah, I I love it if the listeners went and checked it out. If you go to kickstarter.com and search for beyond the mirror image or if you go to my website forevertv.co.uk, you will find links. The campaign is going on throughout November and December. And then the book will be published at the end of next year. Uh, but there's, there's loads of cool bonuses with it this time, which, uh, I haven't done for the previous books. Uh, one of the things that I think is so cool is we're going to be making an audio book to go with it. Chris is writing uh, a story, a piece of fiction for us, which, uh, we're going to be getting a professional actor to read. It will be professionally produced. And that's one of the optional bonuses one of the many optional bonuses that people can pledge for with a campaign. And it's going to have a cameo appearance by Deborah Pratt as the voice of Ziggy. So no matter what happens on the show, people will be able to hear new material with Ziggy next year. So super excited about that. And of course, the book itself with that that massive, expansive timeline in it of all the stuff that happens in the original series and the new series. Loads of fun coming up. Yeah, and uh, just on a personal note, I haven't written fiction in probably over a decade, and I am just reveling in writing this story. I'm just having so much fun. It's just pouring out of me. So oh, thank you, good. Matt, good. for suggesting it. And uh, I hope that everybody likes it. It's turned, as fiction always does, it's turned from the kernel of an idea, but then when you sit down and start writing, everything starts popping. And you're like, oh, and I want to do this. Oh, and I want to do that. And I'm going to have trouble not making a new book out of it. So... <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold yourself back, Chris. I just hope that my enthusiasm comes through in the story. And if that's any kind of enticement for any of you out there, you shouldn't need that. This book, the cover alone on volume three is <laughs> enough for you to have volume three because it's this killer cover with every hand link yes. that has ever been designed. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I mean, that that alone for me is is worth it because it's such a unique fan artifact. Yeah. And uh, yeah. everybody should have one who loves Quantum Leap. So what's that website again, Matt? It's uh, well, kickstarter.com and then searching for Beyond the Mirror Image or going to forevertv.co.uk. And that, that links to not only the Kickstarter campaign, but also uh, has links to buy volume one, the episode guide to the original series, and volume two, the episode guide to the, the 2022 series. Awesome. Awesome. Everybody go check that out. And we will, of course, have links in our show notes. So you can just click right through on your phone as you're listening to this or when you're done listening to this. So thanks, everybody, for the amazing feedback. If you would like to tell us what you think about Secret History or the new season of Quantum Leap or anything Quantum Leap related in general. There are many ways that you can reach us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can drop us a line at P.O. Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast you can instagram us at quantum leap podcast or x us 
at Quantum Leap Pod. You can always find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Quantum Leap Podcast. That's where you'll find the Quantum Leap Podcast after show. And you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Just remember that we may use your response in an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, tell us what's next. Next up, once again, as as we had in the last podcast, I don't have a synopsis. None has been released yet, but next up is A Kind of Magic, where Ben leaps back to the Salem Witch Trials. Not a period of history I'm particularly interested in, so I'm very much prepared for writer Margarita Matthews to absolutely knock it out of the park and completely surprise me, and I'll be absolutely in love with it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited by, by whatever's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is going to stand out as the furthest leap back ever. So right there, we're making Quantum Leap history with this episode. Well, until the dinosaurs. Until the dinosaurs, until yes. Dinosaurs. yes. So, but I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, how they do like a, quote, real historical fiction piece. I know all of Quantum Leap is historical fiction, but this really has sort mm-hmm. of almost like that Civil War leap between the yes. states feel about it because it it's such a period piece and I'm really curious to see how they do it. Mm. So I can't wait to be bewitched <laughs> <laughs> by a kind of magic and I look forward to discussing it with you, Matt. Until that time, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Greg Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. Quantum Leap After Dark, the Tom Westfall edition.